My bad. My bad. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to me out of what's going on in the world today, and you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guest that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917 Three six seven five. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is common sense. emergency strikes, what's your first impulse? If your answer is run to the grocery store, you're likely to find chaos and plenty of empty shelves. So how do you avoid this? Well, it's simple. You use today to make a plan to prepare for things that may happen. It's a hurricane, earthquake, blizzard, or even social unrest, especially in today's political environment. The practical place to start is by storing up food in your home. And I use my Patriot Supply for my food storage. If you don't have an emergency food supply, it's time to do so. Here's a great item that makes it really simple. A two-week food kit that comes in a rugged tote. And it's only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. This food kit includes breakfast, lunch, and dinners that will last up to 25 years on your storage shelves. So order now and prepare yourself, and then rest easy. So it's very simple. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. You know what? 
let's make it even more simple than that. You're listening to my show, and it's called Southern Sense, and you know you put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com, and click on the icon for My Patriot Food. All right, and welcome to another adventure here on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. I said it before, I'll say it again. Go to Southern Sense, the name of the show, put Ash in the Middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is three, Chick Annie, along with my debonair, intellectual, and handsome, I have to throw in, otherwise I'll get beat up, Curtis, <laughs> C.S. Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. How are you today? I'm flying high. I'm going great. And speaking of flying <laughs> high, I got I got to see the trailer for um, Top Gun um, 2. It's called Top Gun Maverick with Tom Cruise. That's coming out in 2020. So sometime after the show, I have to send you the um, link to that trailer. Yeah, I saw some of it being played up on the Internet and on uh, TV, but I didn't catch the whole entire trailer. It looks pretty good. And, you know... I'm not a fan of liberals, <laughs> but Tom Cruise basically keeps his mouth shut, so you got to hand it to him. He knows. Shut up and act. Uh, but in the trailer I saw, he looked pretty damn good for his age. You know, the man oh, yeah. is and aging it, well, and if he still has the athletic <laughs> talent and the acting talent, uh, go for it, Tom. Go for <clears throat> it. And we need a good, uplifting, all-American film. Yeah, and the thing about it is, it's coming out in 2020, and what better year for it to come out to spread all that patriotism, you know? Because when, mm. when Americans see movies about their um, servicemen and women, you know, in films like this, it, it brings out that patriotism. And I'm sure oh, it's going to have that kind of impact. Absolutely. Yeah, I got to let our listeners know that, you know, I kind of screwed up the start of the show. Um, I'm up. We're up on Facebook on the video there. Uh, I found out that uh, when I switched Internet carriers, it changed uh, the way in which I was able to broadcast and send out my podcast. So I've got to go back to my old carrier. So we're not up on YouTube. I will upload the video onto YouTube a little bit later. So please, if you're trying to get onto YouTube, it's not there today. It will be later on tonight or tomorrow. But we are definitely – the video podcast is definitely up on the Facebook page just go to Facebook and key in Southern Sense and it'll pop up. I want to welcome everyone that is listening to us over in the chat room over on Facebook and is showing up in our studio here, reminding people that are calling into the studio. If you want to ask a question or participate in the conversation, please press one. Otherwise, I will assume that you are listening. Curtis, we got ourselves a great show lined up today. We've got two new people to uh, to Southern Sense here. Peter Dabrowski, um, he's written a book previously about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and oh my God, it is, it is awesome. It is an awesome book. And once I read his book, and I basically read his book in just about maybe two sittings, not even, um, got to admit half that sitting was sitting in the emergency room at the hospital just two days ago. Yes, I ended up back in the hospital this week. <laughs> got out yesterday. I'm out of jail. Mm. I'm free. I'm free at last. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the book that just got released only yesterday. It was just released yesterday. I think we may be one of the first stations uh, talking about it. I have not seen him on any other media yet, so we'll be asking him about that. It's called Enemies, 
the press versus the American people. And it is just as phenomenal as his first book about uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And what went on in the book he wrote about, about AOC, a lot of it is coming to fruition today in this past week. So we have a lot to talk about, a lot to do. And, oh, man, we're going to have a really fun show because if Peter talks any way like he writes, I'm going to be peeing in my pants here. I'm telling you, it is, he's just fantastic, phenomenal. <laughs> oh, man. But it, like I said, there is a lot that's going on, and some of the stuff we'll be talking about is the squad. And I don't know if anyone noticed the mimes that are on today's show up on Blog Talk Radio, and I've been posting them up on Facebook and did I put them up on uh, – I don't know, remember if I put them on Instagram. I may not have done that yet, but I put them up, I think, on Twitter too. Uh, one of them someone sent me, the one with Forrest Gump. I have to admit someone sent that to my Facebook page, and I copied it and put it up on the mind today. So thank you to whoever sent that to me on Facebook. You didn't sign your names. So I don't know who sent it, though. But the one about the squad, I took a picture of them, and I added a title to it. So, Curtis, the squad has a new name. Do you remember, Curtis, growing up in the uh, 60s, 70s, there was a TV show called The Mod Squad? Do you remember that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Peggy, yeah, it was Peggy like, Lipton, Clarence um, yeah. Williams III, something like that. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yep. The Mod yep. Squad. The Mod Squad, and everyone watched it. Everyone watched it. It was about three guys that were convicts that got turned into cops, from convicts to cops. And, of course, in that time, in the 60s and 70s, you know, pot was out there, marijuana, the uh, uh, communal living. It was all the mod age, you know, the hippies and so on and so forth. So it was a favorite show. So I took that idea and that theme, and I turned it into the new, as in, AOC's idea of the new Green Deal. So I called it the new Mad Squad. (laughs) So if you see the mime on our show page today, you're going to see the new Mad Squad. Because everyone calls them the squad. And you know, someone on, um, I I don't know if it was Will Cow or another show, uh, had called in. He happened to have been a Marine. And he was in. one of these elite elite squads in the Marine Corps, not the Navy SEALs, but something equivalent to that. And I apologize. He mentioned what unit he was with it. And he actually took offense to the fact that they titled these four bird brains, these four morons. I like Cheek puts in the odd squad. The only problem is they're not so odd considering the left ideology that they're spewing. That's why I say they're mad because only a mad scientist or someone absolutely insane would have half the stuff that comes out of their mouth. Anyway, he he took offense because you think about that. You have the Green Berets, the Navy SEALs. You have these elite units um, that are out there fighting to defend us, and they go by the name of squads. You know, they're known as the squads. So I I could understand his offense, but, you know, guy, you are fighting for our freedom of speech, so words are flexible and they can be used in new meanings, unfortunately. So I understand what you're saying, so I took it to another level, adding the description in front of it to not make it confused with our brave men and women out there in these units. So that was my excuse. Anyway, I'm running on. <laughs> Just <laughs> running on. 
<laughs> I wouldn't be unhappy if they were called um, the Little Rascals. No, that's an insult to the Little Rascals because they were more <laughs> more democratic in in their in the company they kept because they had girls, they had uh, black kids on it. They, the Little Rascals that that was the heart of America. Come on, kids are kids. They're innocent. They're going to do yeah. things out of being innocent. Uh, but these people, All these four right. women, are not innocent. That, that's for damn sure. Anyway, um, those that listen to the show know that we start off each show with a dedication to a fallen hero. However, before we get to our dedication to our fallen hero, I want to bring up the passing of two individuals uh, that no one is mentioning in the media. And of all things, I would have thought this would have shown up maybe like on Fox News or another conservative news outlet. I don't see hide of hair of these two individuals anywhere. Um, one of them was Chief Justice Stevens. Uh, he passed away just a couple of days ago. Um, and there was just a small, you know, there was an item in the obituary page of my local paper. I saw nothing. And people remember Justice Stevens was appointed by a Republican president. Um, he served, I believe he was appointed by Ronald Reagan, and he was considered highly conservative when you reviewed his rulings. But over time, he began to switch and become more and more liberal in his uh, rulings. When he stepped down from the Supreme Court, he was then replaced by Elena Kagan. Even though he was a liberal a justice, he was a Supreme Court justice and is worthy of having his passing noted. And so we do give honor and deference to Justice Stevens and his family and send condolences for their loss. And the other person came up in today's paper. And if anyone thinks back to 40 years ago, in November of 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was overrun by Iranian rebels. Uh, 52 American hostages were held for 444 days. One of those held passed away just yesterday at the age of 96. He was the chief diplomat at the embassy at the time of its takeover. His name, if anyone remembers, was Bruce Lingen. Uh, his son Chip uh, told the Associated Press his father died from complications from Parkinson's disease at assisted living facility in Bethanasia, Maryland. Um, at the time, U.S. Ambassador William Sullivan stepped down early in 1979, and the U.S. sought a short-term leader for the Tehran embassy. Its diplomatic presence in the country uh, was at risk. Uh, they had called on Langdon to fill the post. He was only supposed to fill it for six, four to six weeks. He goes out there in mid-1979 thinking he's only going to be there for a month, month and a half max, and be on his way home. Needless to say, come November of that year, he was still there and taken as one of the 52 hostages and held for 444 days. So to our U.S. diplomat, Bruce Langdon, and his family, again, our condolences go out to you and to an American hero that survived 444 days, came back to talk about it, to place his 
memories into the archives back in 1992 for the Association of Diplomatic Studies and Training. So two men that have passed and mainstream media has ignored them. And that said, we go forward to today's dedication. And this just kind of hits a little bit hard to home today because if anyone was paying attention to today's news, um, Senator Cory Booker has put forward legislation to remove the name police from the uniforms of our border security from the ICE agents and from the Department of Homeland Security, of those men and women working on the border, because of the connotation to the immigrant community, or should I say to the illegal alien community, that are attempting to cross and violate our border, uh, because police have such a derogatory name in our society. And with it goes those of our other first responders, uh, be they law enforcement, be they firefighters, or be they emergency services. So today's dedication, even though it does not go out to a law enforcement, is going out to a firefighter, means all that more to me, because every day our society does something like this. It weakens the power these brave men and women have, the ability to protect and serve you as a public citizen and as a taxpayer. They're doing a hell of a hard job out there made even harder by the insensitivity of some of our elected officials and our public uh, media. That said, today's dedication is going to go out to Captain Scott Danheimer of Smokin, Pennsylvania. He was a firefighter who died at the scene of a house fire on December 20th of last year. And unfortunately, there was not a lot to read about this individual. So I had to pick and piece some of it together. So forgive me if it sounds a little stilted and unconnected, but I'm going to do the best I can. The first part is coming from firefighterclosecalls.com, written by Billy. He gives no other name except for Billy. And it reads, Scott W. Danheimer, 53, died in the line of duty while at the scene of a mobile home fire on First Street in Cole Township on Thursday, December 2018. On August 30th, 1991, in Shemokin, Scott married the former Millie Hood, who survives as his widow. He worked as an escort driver for a trucking company. He was an active member of the Cole Township Fire Department and East End Fire Company, where he served as its captain. Scott also belonged to the Goodwill Fire Company in Sunbury and the main and former Fireview Fire Companies in Cole Township. In addition to his wife, he survived by six sons. But there is more to this hero, and it is found in newsitem.com under obituaries. Scott W. Danheimer, 53, at 813 Oneida Street, passed away at Gethinger Shemokin Area Community Hospital after being stricken ill by the scene of a mobile home fire on First Street in Cole Township on Thursday on December 20th last year. He was born in Parsippany, New Jersey on July 18, 1965, a son of the late Lawrence and Florence Danheimer Quinn. He attended Silk Lamy High School. 
in addition to his wife and his six sons, Scott Dan Scott Danheimer is survived by Scott Danheimer Jr., William Danheimer, Charlie Danheimer and his wife Tanya of Sunbury, Scott Danheimer and his fiance Grace Oliver of Shimokin, Hutler Danheimer of Shimokin, and Michael Danheimer and his wife Allie of Shimokin. Four daughters. Christina Rose and her husband, Larry of Cole Township, Colleen Snyder of Sunbury, Danielle Lebo and her husband, Jason of Shemokin, and Becca Danheimer of Sunbury. Eight grandsons and nine granddaughters, a brother, Joseph, a sister-in-law, Patty, two brother-in-laws, Ronnie and John, and his girlfriend, Nadine, as well as many nieces, nephews, and cousins. In addition to his parents, Scott is preceded in death by his mother-in-law, Linda Rothrick, a granddaughter, Teresa Lebo, and her brother-in-law, Joseph Delano. And finally, this was found on WNEP.com, titled Remembering Scott Danheimer. Tears were shed outside of Pharaoh C.J. Lucas Funeral Home and cremation service in Shemokin. Firefighters stood in silence to honor one of their own, then Captain Scott Danheimer. When you're talking about a member of the fire department, from our point of view, we lost a brother. But the family lost a husband, a father, a grandfather, said Chief Russ Feast of the Cold Township Fire. He would give the shirt off his back, and he would be there for you if you were stuck on the side of the road, and you called everyone in the phone book, and he was the last person you called. He would be there in a heartbeat, said Christina Rose, Scott's daughter. Scott Danheimer, who had a heart condition, died after responding to a mobile home fire in Cold Township. A black bunting was draped over a fire engine as it rode under an American flag through Shemokin. A big loss for the community, for the community of friends and families, and even the fire service, because he was very active said John Sealer Shemokin. Those who knew the captain say he was a leader and showed during his 25 years of being a firefighter. This is one of those one in a million guys. He is what the fire service is all about. He goes out there selflessly and serves the entire community and never asks for anything back, said Sean David Gould of St. Clair. Today's show is dedicated this brave man, Captain Scott Danheimer of Shemokin, Pennsylvania, is also dedicated to all the brave men and women out there that serve as first responders, be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate this show to all the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this wonderful and great nation, an exceptional nation, through today and into its wonderful and glorious future. We dedicate this song titled Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one.
And we're back. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense Live on Blog Talk Radio. news all the heck with it. Just go to our radio show, the name of it, Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I want to welcome everyone that's showing up in our chat room and is popping into our studio here. Again, if you call into the studio, which is 917-889-3675. If you want to participate and ask a question or make a comment, please remember to press 1. Otherwise, my assumption is you're just listening in. I'm your hostess with the most sister, Radio Chick Annie, along with my co-host, the one, the only, the ever effervescent, Curtis C.S. Bennett. <laughs> Curtis, oh man, we're going to have an exciting show. But before we start, I want to mention two things. One is that we're getting a huge pushback on this pro-choice crowd. And if anyone is in the Charleston, South Carolina area, I want you to tune in and really listen to this. On Sunday, this coming Sunday, July 21st, at 12.45 p.m., outside of the restaurant that called 2, T-U, capital T, small u, T-U, which is at 430 Meeting Street in downtown Charleston, Catch this out, Curtis. This is talk about audacity. Talk about audacity. They are having a bake sale to help promote Planned Parenthood and pro choice. Now, you think about bake wow. sales, you think about schools, about churches, things that gather the community and help grow and birth in the community and to expand in the community. That you think about that in, in helping children in helping those that are least in our society. And you think about growth. You think about beautiful things. Uh, When I think about a bake sale, the last thing that comes to my mind is abortion. Uh, But this is how sick this segment of our society has become, that they're having an outdoor bake sale in front of a commercial restaurant, not a... um, nonprofit clinic or something like that. No, no, no. But in front of a commercial restaurant, a retail restaurant, to promote abortion. Now, is this not sick? I wouldn't be surprised if they have little girls there passing out the, you know, the goods so they can be indoctrinated, you know. 
What is this country coming to? They're publicly raising funds for the Charleston Planned Parenthood. And participating in this are at least a dozen restaurants and businesses. So this is not just two restaurants. It is another 11 or so more restaurants and businesses participating in this. It's a movement. Again, downtown downtown Charleston, it's all gathering in front of the two restaurants, TU Restaurant, at 430 Meeting Street at 1245. So if you get there early, I suggest getting there very early and getting yourself a good parking space. Um, But if you go there or if you know anyone in the Charleston area, you've got friends, you've got relatives, you know someone on the Internet in one of your social medias, reach out to them. And the reason why I found out about this is there are a gentleman who sends me these emails. His name is Robert Ritchie, and he's a part of an organization called America Needs Fatima. And for those that are not uh, aware of what Fatima is, Fatima is the Madonna, the Virgin Mary. And she's also known as the Lady of Fatima for her uh, miraculous appearance in Fatima, Portugal, to the young children there, hence the name Fatima. So this is put together by a Catholic organization, the Counter Protest, and they're going to be going there to pray. So they're not going to be going doing a direct confrontation. So if you do go to join the Counter Protest, no, it's not going to be confrontational. They're going to go there to pray. So if you do join in in the counter-protest, be aware of that uh, because it will be peaceful. We don't expect any anything to happen. But, uh, yeah, again, spread the word about this uh, two-restaurant at 430 Meeting Street, downtown Charleston, South Carolina, on this coming Sunday. Get there early. Um, the counter-protest will start at 1245. But, again, get yourself enough time to get downtown because uh, knowing that area around Meeting Street, there's not a lot of parking so you may end up having to ride, you know, the trolley or the bus up to that that area of the street. Again, it's a Charleston planned parenthood bake sale of all things. A bake sale. Oh my goodness. What, they what else to, would, would these they, left people <laughs> They ought to get the churches involved in this, those that um you know, are to the right of center. Because there are some churches out there that support this kind of thing. But I'm talking about true Christian with um, true conservative values. They should take off that day from work or whatever, even if it's for half a day, to um, send a message that you know this, oh, this cannot be you know, absolutely accepted. Well, I'm going to post this this up onto our Facebook page uh, so people will know about this. Oh, good lord, the Charleston Planned Parenthood fundraiser. Uh, again, if anyone wants to go to the counter-protest that's being held by America Needs Fatima, which happens to be a Roman Catholic organization, they're going to be there to counter it just to pray, not to confront them. I will put this up on our Facebook page if anyone wants to go this Sunday to downtown Charleston. But it looks like we may have our guest in on the line. And welcome aboard to the victim in our bullpen. And actually, after reading his two books, I think I better not say that because he'll probably write one about me. I want to welcome aboard. Buongiorno, paisano, uh, Peter Debrosca. Good afternoon. How are you doing, Peter? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, as my grandmother, Della Vecchia, would have said to me, Anouch, he's a nice Italian boy. Be nice to him. <laughs> <laughs> 
I have to admit, you know, I, I when John had sent your information over to me and I was, I was reading about it, and I said, all right, this sounds great. Let me send me the information, send me the book. And, you know, of course, John sends me stuff and I got other uh, publicists to send me a lot of stuff. So, I, you know, I put it aside. I think about it. the book came in and I started thumbing through that and I says, oh, my God, this sounds great. So I did a little background and I did a little research I did on you. And I found this is not the first book that you published this year. Actually, it is the second and before right. I read your second book, which only came out yesterday, so I hope I'm your first interview, um, you wrote one about AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I says, no, let me read the first one before I read the second one. And I'm so glad I did, because what has happened in the last week, Peter, you are an angel on my doorstep for this show today. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, I, I'm, I'm glad that you got to, uh, to read the AOC book. Um, it was, uh, it was kind of interesting because we did the, um, we did the, the enemies book first, but in the interim, I mean, I finished that book up at the beginning of this year, uh, but that in the interim, before we released it, which, you know, it was Tuesday, right? So it was like, there was like a six month gap between finishing the book and having it released. Uh, publisher asked me if I would do a biography on AOC. Um, and so I did that uh, in the meantime, and we didn't do any press for it or anything like that. We just uh, sent it right to Amazon. Uh, and it was, it turned out to be a, just an absolutely fascinating investigation into AOC. And um, you, you probably read, I mean, there's, there's several bullet points in there, exclusive information on AOC and an exclusive interview with her spokesman who is uh, hard to get a hold of. Um, but, yeah, I really enjoyed writing both of these books. Well, you see, I'm, as you can tell from my dialect, I am not from the South, even though I got here as soon as I could. I am a native New Yorker uh, growing up on Long Island and working as a cop in Brooklyn. So, like I always say, you can take the cop out of Brooklyn. You can't take the Brooklyn out of the cop. So reading your book, um, I had some connections to some people up in the New York area, and I had come across when AOC was running last year, the people were asking a lot of questions. Well, how come she's never in her campaign office? How come we can never find her? And the answer I always got back was is that, oh, she's out there knocking on doors. All right, fine. I'll take that for what it is. But after she got elected, it's like, well, how come she's never, there's never staff in her, her, her offices? Where is her offices? Where does she live? And we were asking these questions, and you finally put it down onto paper and actually went knocking on doors trying to find out where in Brooklyn did she ever – I'm not Brooklyn, the Bronx – did she ever live? Yeah, and, and so that remains a mystery, right? Uh, so we're told in the campaign narrative is uh, she grew up – or she was born in the Bronx. Uh, her family, when she was young, moved to – uh, wealthy Westchester County, New York, which is uh, into, into a town called Yorktown Heights, which is where, um, you know, it's like Wall Street banker types go to get away from the city. I mean, this is a very wealthy community I visited. I mean, her whole campaign narrative was that her life was, um, her life was defined by the 40-minute commute that she would take between the Bronx and where she grew up. And so, you know, when the campaign puts it like that, it makes it sound like she was, you know, hopping on a bus and then, you know, going over to the subway station and, you know, to get to where she was going in the Bronx, you know, between where she lived and, and the city. 
But when you actually go to New York and you you take this 40-minute commute, which I did, uh, you find very quickly that you leave the city and you're in the middle of like rural America. And you're passing country clubs and state parks and you pass over this very quaint bridge into her town of Yorktown Heights where the median income is like $40,000 higher than that of the average American household. And you're in like suburbia, right? She grew up nowhere close to the Bronx. Uh, and then, so, you know, the campaign has never really addressed this, but um, then there's this idea that she moved back to the Bronx after college uh, to, to help her mother settle her father's affairs. Uh, but still there's no evidence other than a voter registration at a Parkchester apartment where that her father owned. Uh, there's still no evidence that she ever actually lived there. Uh, in fact, the New York Post did like a long-form investigative report about this, which I really love. It's been one of my favorite pieces that I've read this year where they basically staked out this Parkchester apartment where she claims to live – to have lived in the Bronx, and they found no evidence of her living there in all of the days that they were there. They talked to her neighbors who said that they had never met her. Uh, they talked to like the mail – this is really shoe-leather reporting. That's why I enjoyed it. They talked to like the mailman who was like, yeah, you know, mail piles up here for like three months at a time. Uh, they talked to you know the guy who owned like the supermarket down the street. He was like, never met her, never seen her, you know. Uh, so it's, it's pretty fascinating that there's really very little evidence she ever lived in the Bronx at all. Um, even the bar that she worked at that we're always told about, I and mean, this is a whole different narrative that has been sort of really spun in her favor. Uh, but even the bar that she worked at is in lower Manhattan. It's in the, the ritziest part of the city. It's you know 100 yards from where the original coach store stands on Fifth Avenue. I mean it's, it's uppity. It's not – it's not as though uh, you know she grew up in, in sort of the hood in the Bronx as she would have you believe. Uh, the, the whole thing is, is a well, fabrication. Know, it's a, go ahead. Well, well I, I found it hysterical because you know um, I'm one of those that I put myself through college. I actually worked at one point literally three part-time jobs to pay for my tuition and uh, and books, and I worked as a waitress and I worked as a bartender. And I'm sure that – well, now it's been so many uh, decades later. It will be a little hard to trace me going back that far. But even 10 years after I left, if you had gone into any of those places, oh, yeah, we know her. Yeah, we remember her. But when you right. went back, and this was only just a handful of years after, not even that long a time, but either they would not talk about her or they didn't know her. And out of all the people you spoke to her that worked with her, I found ironic for this uh, <laughs> avowed socialist, uh, the one person that did talk to her did not have very kind things to say about her. Because anyone that works in the restaurant industry knows and understands about pooling your tips. Uh, <laughs> and I found that absolutely amusing when I read about that incident in your book. Yeah, so there was one um, there was one waitress who's not thrilled with AOC uh, due to a incident where AOC I guess uh, stiffed her on Cinco de Mayo after like a really busy night. Um, but you know, along that sort of vein, um, there's ample evidence that AOC is not actually a socialist and, and never really was. Um, so the, the whole bartending narrative is is what 
the campaign tells you because they wanted to give her this image that she's uh, just, you know, a regular average Joe, right? But the question that was never answered that I could not figure out was why did she go back to the Bronx after graduating from Boston University with a degree in economics and international relations and then take a bartending job? Right. Like, I mean, she couldn't find an, a white collar office job or, you know, why why is it that the bartender narrative is this is the main story? So I looked into it a little bit further. It turns out that's not exactly true. I mean, she did tend bar there and I did go to the bar where she tended and the bartender did know her but wouldn't talk about her, uh, which was the theme of like nearly everybody I talked to who knew her or knows her. Um it turns out, though, she worked uh, out of a, a, an entrepreneurial startup incubator in the Bronx where she was trying to start her own book publishing company. Uh, she did that for at least a year, long enough to complain, by the way, about small business taxes and how difficult small business taxes were on uh, young entrepreneurs who were just starting their companies. My, how things have changed um, since she's gone to Congress. She also worked as a lead strategist of a marketing firm, uh, which was owned by the same guy who owned the incubator that she worked out of when she was trying to start her own business. And I talked to that guy, and he pretty much stonewalled me too. So uh, it's pretty interesting when you look at the evidence, uh, what I could dig up about AOC. Uh, there's really no evidence that she was ever this radical socialist. Before she ran for Congress, there's no evidence at all that she worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign, other than the fact that she said she worked for the Bernie Sanders campaign. I reached out to organizers and several people on the campaign. Nobody got back to me to confirm that she actually worked there. Uh, the whole story is, is, is pretty fascinating when you think about it, and, uh, and I hope people will read that book because uh, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, about 160 pages of, of just investigative reporting and uh, – I'm pretty proud of the work from it. Well, you know, I I know when I have a great author in front of me doing the interview with me, uh, because if I can pick up your book and read it either in one or maximum two sittings, and I don't put it down several times, I know I've got someone that has absolutely captivated my attention. And you write in such a good, concise manner that it's not a slow reading or it's not reading that you have to go back over a paragraph going, wait a minute, what did he just write here? Sometimes I get authors that do that and you have to just put the book down, walk away, do something else, come back and say, all right, now I understand what he was writing about. You are so clear and so concise in what you write. It's, it, it's an imbecile could <laughs> understand what you wrote about. But what you, ex what you expose to us is what mainstream media doesn't want us to know. And even those in conservative media aren't even paying attention to. You are on the cutting edge here. You with big league politics and only a few other places are really paying attention to the truth behind the story of this individual. Yeah, and, and so it's interesting that you mentioned the, the conservative media there. And I think that um, you know conservative media does a good job at a lot of things. But unfortunately, they're wrapped up right now in the sort of higher level uh, or the more broad issue of, you know, socialism is bad and capitalism is good. Right. So that's I mean, you kind of get like that surface level reporting from this. Like this is why we shouldn't like AOC because she's a socialist and because socialism is bad for America. 
uh, when I look at that, I say, like, yeah, I get it. You know, how many more times are we going to go over this? Um, I'm, I was really interested in AOC, the person. Like, how did she become what she is? And, um, you know, that's, that was the, the, really the bottom line question that I sought to answer in the book. And I don't think I quite got there, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, if more people look into it over time, we'll find out more about AOC. It was pretty difficult with, um, with some of the people who, you know, stonewalled, including her campaign spokesman, who is an absolute professional. And uh, even though I got 20 minutes on the record with him, he wouldn't uh, – <laughs> Wouldn't give me any, any even any basic information, you know. Um, but Peter. Uh, yeah. Oh, this Peter. is my co-host Curtis, Curtis C.S. Bennett. By the way, Curtis has written twenty-four. I think he's on his twenty-fifth book. So you got a ways to pick to catch up, Peter. I do. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going, Peter? I, I'm enjoying this um, conversation. Is there any evidence that um, there's a a rich liberal who's backing not only AOC but the other members of the squad have you come across any information like that well so there's there's this justice democrats pack that that put up all four of the members of the quote unquote squad actually um and the justice democrats was founded by Jenk Unger the the young turks guy um and he's i mean he's pretty well off the young turks makes a lot of money now, he's not involved with the pack anymore. He got booted out after somebody exposed uh, some old sexist writing that he did on a blog. Uh, but the idea that uh, the, the whole thing is grassroots um, is, is sort of a sham in that they say they only take uh, individual donations, but you can't really be sure of that because the money all goes through the pack, right? I mean, it's like the classic campaign finance conundrum is like, are these really grassroots donations or are there big organizations donating? So the claim is unproven as the fact checkers in our mainstream press would say. Um, I'm not sure whether there are, are, are big backers or big donors or not. Um, you know, the benefit though of, of their model, and this is, this is what they, this is you know kind of what they set out to do is they take, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 or 80 candidates who aren't expected to win, who are real dark horse candidates, and they put them up in these primaries, uh, and then they get you know two or three or four of them to win, uh, and and you know they're in solid districts where they don't have to compete in general elections, so they're in a position where they don't have to spend a whole lot of money on a general. So I mean, once AOC won that primary, I mean it was it was over, right? I mean, no, there was no her, her Republican opponent didn't even. Um, he didn't even campaign actively in the general because it just you know wasn't worth it for for where they live. Um, so, you know, it's kind of a smart strategy where you know if you get these one-off type situations in in a solidly blue district where an upstart grassroots type candidate wins, then you're in a position to not have to spend a lot of money and you still get a, a congressperson out of it. Um, so I, you know, the answer is in, in short is I'm not sure. I'm, I'm really not. I wasn't able to to get to the bottom of Justice Democrats. I mean, that path, as far as I can tell, is is an entire book on its own. Um, you know, particularly the people who run it, and uh, with all the financial shenanigans that seem to be going on in the background with uh, mixing personal income with PAC income with 
um, you know, LLC or corporation campaign income. Uh, there's a lot of questions surrounding that. Well, you know, I got to admit, we, we do have the podcast video up live on Facebook, and I had done on mine, which is on the show page link that I sent you to uh, to you and John. And the mime has the four, the squad, in a row. And I, someone else had posted the picture up on the, the Internet, so I just borrowed that picture. But I added the title, The New, as in The New Deal, uh, The New Mod, it's not a mod, Mad Squad, <laughs> taking off on the Mod Squad. So I've got my mime up here <laughs> playing on the video <laughs> because that's what they are. They're mad. They have to be mad. But when when I was reading about – the financial shenanigans going back to before she even ran for office, her involvement with that bookbinding company. And actually, my husband was a printer, and we were involved in stuff like this. So I understand the, the processes they have to go through. So here she came out of the blue with no knowledge of printing or publishing or anything like that. She's got this, all of a sudden this, this book publishing company and this other uh, organization is supposed to help with education and developing uh, uh, partnerships between the community. And, and it sounded so like, huh, what? Here she is, this entrepreneur, but yet an alleged socialist, and yet the financial ties with those business dealings that then moved into her political background and her campaign and these PACs you're talking about, Talk about incestuous relationships. My goodness, why isn't this being ripped wide open by the FEC and the FBI, any other investigative IRS organization out there? Well, there was, um, there was one conservative watchdog group that filed an FEC complaint uh, over the seeming uh, sort of I – don't, I don't mean money laundering in, in the typical sense, but like the laundering of cash between – uh, the corporation that has the same name as the PAC, uh, and then you know through the campaign and then out eventually on the other side to like people who are close to AOC, like her boyfriend Riley Roberts, made like six grand through that sort of model. Um, I'm not sure that there's been an update with that. I mean, as we know, the federal government does not exactly move quickly. Uh, but I also am not very confident that there ever will be any answers on these things. It, it seems as though there have been campaign fi- finance violations, but when we look at you know, instances of these types of violations, which happen all the time, we never seem to get answers you know, because once you become part of the established sort of political machine in D.C., you're no longer accountable to the, the ordinary rules and regulations of the laws that normal people have to follow on a daily basis. And this is uh, one thing I, I really take issue with, especially with AOC is she went from like that that ordinary like regular blue collar person at least allegedly uh, overnight to congress and uh and you can see in the way that she behaves that she's she she took right away to the the DC sort of uh I'm above the law type narrative i mean right away like she flipped in in a second she says she's talking about her being the boss and how you know if you don't like it you can you can shut up because you're not her. You don't have a position of power, right? Um, I mean, has there been anybody who's who's switched over to that culture so quickly? I'm not sure. Uh, but, yeah, there's one thing that was pretty striking to me about her is the arrogance level. Well, you know, when I was reading about her and you were describing her in her school environment when she was up in uh, uh, Westchester County, New York, um, going to uh, was the Park Haven School at the time, 
Uh, and, you know, anyone that knows the New York metropolitan area understands the division uh, of the New York City five boroughs area. And then you go out on Long Island eastward, as we called it, East Cupcake, to Nassau and Suffolk mm-hmm. County. And you've got one type of, uh, uh, of uh, mindset there, one type of – I know it's changed since I've left in 2001. Uh, and then you have – crossing over the East River up into Westchester and going into Larchmont and those areas there, it's a whole nother world, as you said, very rural. Uh, It's more urban, suburban on Long Island than it is in that area there. And you've got exclusive neighborhoods. And I remember um, when I was reading about her in school and her clips that she was involved in, which you really couldn't find much, but reading from her attitude and what she was doing, I could just imagine those mean girl cliques that you go into. They're the ones that are most popular, the cheerleaders, the ones that are involved in everything, uh, flipping their hair back, fixing their makeup as they walk down the hall. That type of a girl is how I pictured her. So uh, reading about this attitude that she took to D.C., I don't think it was too far of a stretch because she already had that privileged attitude. She wasn't Alexandria. She was Sandy. She didn't even recognize right. her Hispanic roots. <laughs> but That's yet right. all of a sudden she does her, her background history and she's got Jewish heritage. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but she has that anti-Semite. Right, right. She's the, uh, and she's the oppressed minority, you know, and uh, she's the person of color. She's this She's these the the brown Americans I keep hearing about, which really aggravates me. I'm half an Arab uh, myself. I'm half Syrian, uh, and I too am from the north. Uh, and I keep uh, I keep hearing about these brown Americans. Brown Americans don't like Trump. Brown Americans take offense to what Trump had to say about the squad. And I'm tired of these people speaking on my behalf. To be frank with you, uh, but you know what's interesting, and and uh, this was to me one of the the most gratifying uh, parts of the whole investigation. When I was in, in Yorktown Heights in the town she grew up in, I stopped in to get a, a, a coffee, right? And, uh, you know, I'm waiting for the coffee to come around and I, I, I wanted to get a, like a general sentiment of what people thought of AOC in the town that she grew up in. And so I started uh, chatting with this girl. It's probably about my age, 25, 26, whatever. Um, and, uh, and I said, so, you know, can you explain to me, you know, what the general sentiment is about AOC in this town? And without skipping a beat, without thinking about it, I mean, it rolled right off the end of her tongue. She looked at me and she said, well, AOC is just as white as the rest of us. And I like, I had to pause and I had a friend with me who's a witness to this conversation. And I looked at my friend and my friend looked back at me and we're like looking at each other thinking, does this girl like understand what she just said or like how impactful that statement is. And she was like looking up at us, like we had two heads for, for not like, you know, thinking that was normal for, for thinking that there was something out of place about her saying that. Um, so it, it really did strike me as odd. It seems to me that AOC didn't adopt this, uh, this whole oppressed minority deal uh, until she realized that she could, benefit from it politically uh, she's just as white as the rest of us it's, it's a, the funniest thing i've probably ever heard anybody say uh at least in, in the context well, of is, writing books is there a victimhood category that she has not pulled yet i, I think she's been no. a victim in just about every single category you can think of outside of being yeah, a male the, gay 
Yeah, well, right. That's that's exactly right. That's that's the crazy thing, right? Is that um, she will always, always play the victim. Like it doesn't matter how high she rises. She she could. I think I might have written this in the book. I'm not. I don't quite remember. She could rise as high as president of the United States, and she will still find a way to be a victim. All right. She was complaining when she got elected to Congress. Well, now I'm a victim because I don't know if I have enough money to uh, to hold myself over until I start getting my congressional salary. It's like you're a, you're about to be a member of the U.S. Congress, and, and you're still a victim here. I mean, it was absolutely absolutely baffling to me. There's there's always something that she will do to play. It's and and that's like the whole tactic, right? The tactic is uh, if you attack AOC for anything on any subject, uh, no matter how benign, if you don't agree with her politics, she will turn you into some kind of racist, bigot, sexist, misogynist. Like that's the entire playbook. It always has been. Um, but it's obviously really ramped up here over the last like five or six years uh, with the, the whole PC culture and the social justice warriorism, which is super annoying. Um, and it's really, frankly, why we shouldn't take any of these people seriously, right? Like if anybody ever calls you a racist, like that word is dead, right? The word racist is dead. It has no meaning, right? A racist is now somebody who disagrees with a Democrat. Like that should be the new definition. Um, so, you know, in my opinion, whenever anybody calls you that kind of stuff, I just blow them off. Like they're, they're not interested in having a serious dialogue or debate or anything. They're just interested in, in protecting their own ideas, which are indefensible. And so they deflect by calling you names. Uh, it's really kind of an embarrassing uh, level of uh, discourse that we've gotten to in this country, but that's where we're at because our members of Congress are behaving that way. Peter, yeah, now, do you think that we should still, I was just gonna mention, still write Go ahead. Go ahead, Curtis. Finish up. Go ahead, Curtis. I was just going to say, um, do you think we should still write Nancy Pelosi off? I mean, after all, this woman didn't get in power because she was a nice person. And I think it was her daughter who said that she can cut your head off before you realize you're bleeding. I really think Mm -hmm. that um, Nancy is going to find a way to silence AOC, whether it be scandal or something in that girl's past. But believe me, they're searching for a way to silence I, this young lady. I, I think you're, I think you're exactly right, and I think that, uh, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if, um, if the moderate Democrats pour a whole bunch of money into a primary challenger against AOC um, in 2020. To be honest with you, like I, I wouldn't be surprised if that whole establishment, uh, the whole sort of what is now this centrist part of the Democratic Party, Nancy Pelosi, if you can believe it, um, I wouldn't be surprised if that whole sort of established complex got together and said, like, we need to get rid of these people because they're making our lives miserable um, and just, you know, took all of the resources at their disposal, which is, of course, millions of dollars, uh, and just had her primaried. Um, But, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think ultimately, like, Pelosi wins this battle, right? She's been doing this for for decades, she's not going to let some like 29 year old petulant, you know, whiny little girl uh, take all the power away from her. I just don't see it happening. So I think you're, I think you're dead on with that. I think that um, at some point the Democrats are going to have to save the Democrats from uh, this progressive little cult that they've got going on. That's, uh, you know, fracturing their party. I mean, just this week, AOC was threatening to to have moderate Democrats primaried, and one of them went on Fox News to respond to her. I mean, think about that. It was uh, Henry Queller, I think his name is, from Texas, 
who's pretty much a moderate Democrat, and AOC threatened to have him primary because he didn't buy into the socialist Green New Deal. Um, and he he was so mad at her for that. He took an interview on Fox News to bash AOC. I mean, that's the that's where the Democratic Party's at right now. They, they have to put a stop to this. Otherwise, I mean, they're not going to have any kind of united front going into 2020. Uh, and, and what does that look like for their party? I mean, they, how are they going to beat Trump when they can't even agree on whether they're they're socialists or, or or whether they're still sort of the moderate, you know, Democrat centrists that America has become used to? Um, the AOC is doing a, and, and you know there have been a lot of opinion pieces that have said this, like we should let AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashid Tlaib and all these people, we should just let them talk, right? Like we shouldn't interrupt. It's like a, an art of war thing, right? Like don't interrupt your enemy while he's committing suicide. Um, and I think that there's merit to that argument. We should just you know let them be them and and let them you know take take the whole party down with them. Uh, it would be fascinating to watch. Man, it's interesting uh, because, you know, you, you think about the margin she won in her district, and it was only – I think it was something like 3,000 votes is the only by yeah. the margin which she won. Uh, and she had a, a candidate she primaried against that didn't even campaign. The one time there was a campaign done, he sent a surrogate. He didn't even show up. He didn't think this <laughs> yeah. race was that important because he didn't think he was going to win – I mean lose. Uh, I'm questioning whether or not he actually wanted to uh, win from his attitude. But here, if she's going to try to primary against some of these other moderate Democrats, my thing would be go ahead because you send your left wing over the top to my district who will not appreciate an outsider, especially from New York, being sent to my district to primary against me. You going to give me more votes, so bring it on would be my attitude. Yeah. No, you might be right about that. I mean, um, I, I think the bottom line is, you know, we hear a lot in, in media about how Americans are warming to socialism, but uh, that's not necessarily true in like the Rust Belt, you know, in, in like what we would picture as sort of classic America, right? Like in the South and in the Midwest, those people are not warming to socialism. You know who's warming to socialism in America? It's like idiots on college campuses. That's, that's it. You know, it's like young people uh, who are brainwashed by their like far left academic think tank bubble people um, who are saying socialism is good and we need to move over to that model. It's not like serious people who actually go out and vote. So I think that um, AOC and the rest of her little clan there has, has made a, a miscalculation about how many people in this country actually support their far left agenda. I really just – I don't think America as a whole is ready for it. Maybe in, in these little pockets of, of youth, um, you know, there's that sort of revolutionary uh, type sentiment about you know, bring, ushering in collectivism that is attractive to, to those young people, but young people don't vote. When it all comes down to it, so um, I really, I really don't think they're going anywhere with this this whole movement. It is fascinating to watch. It's a fascinating time to be alive uh, and to work in politics for sure. Uh, but ultimately, I think that um, you know you're going to see them move, the Democrats move back to the middle. Well, absolutely, because I'm looking at her district four, and I happen to love politics one, even though they claim to be nonpartisan. You, you know which way they lean, but they do normally give you a full list of everyone that's either potentially or is 
put their hat in the ring to run against her. And she's got three of the Democrats that are probably going to primary against her. But in the interim, she's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven potential Republicans on the other side. And a couple of them are pretty strong, uh, such as like Sherry Murray, uh, Rich Valdez. Uh, and then they've got another retired New York City cop. Uh, John Cummings looking to come after. So you've got some people that are, have a little gravitas here coming after her. <clears throat> so this seat has a good potential of actually turning red. Yeah, that's right. I think there is um, there is a, a possibility of that. I mean, when you're in uh, urban districts like that, uh, the, the chances of flipping it are very small. But this, uh, this one candidate is Sherry Murray. Uh, it's really intriguing to me. I wrote a piece about her uh, this week. I, I contribute actually over at Laura Loomer's website. I wrote a piece about Sherry Murray there, and she's uh, she's well qualified. She's a she's a businesswoman um, who has been successful in business, not like AFC whose business failed. Um, she's obviously she's a Black American, uh, so you know she's sort of bucking the the stereotype of what a Republican should look like, right? Um, at least you know by what the media would tell you. Um, and, uh, and I think that she's well-spoken. I think that, um, that she has a message that, that basically says, well, I mean, look, AOC hasn't done anything except, uh, try and divide people and yell at the president on Twitter. Uh, and, and the people deserve better than that. And I think that, you know, if you stick to the message of, uh, you know, you, the voter deserve better than what you, the voter are getting. And Hey, this was a fun little experiment, but, uh, she didn't go make any revolutionary changes. I think that Sherry Murray actually had a shot. Are you guys with me? Hello? Danny, can you hear me? I can hear you. He dropped out apparently. I know it was storming. Oh, no about to storm on my end. Yeah, I can actually I can hear that in the background. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, could you tell our audience how you got started in in this field of um politics? Yeah, for sure. And writing uh, about it. Yeah, definitely. So I was um, three years ago, four years ago now, time flies. Uh, I was mm-hmm. nearly, nearly uh, apolitical. I had, I had never been involved in politics, never been concerned with it. I grew up in a conservative household, um, a blue collar type household. Um, but my parents are, are baby boomers. They're from the silent generation. So we never talked politics, right? That wasn't like the, the polite thing, right? So, um, so I hadn't I hadn't really been engaged, but uh, in 2015 I decided that I wanted to be informed uh, during the 2016 election. So I said, hey, maybe I should start uh, doing my homework here and, and, and getting involved a little bit. Um, and so I started watching the news regularly and reading some news online, and it became very apparent to me very fast that the corporate media was uh, slanted very far to the left. Um, and so that took me to. The alternative media, which is largely conservative, um, 
And I said to myself, this is a little bit more my speed. Um, and then I got on Twitter, which is where all the news happens. And immediately, uh, with the rise of Donald Trump, became just totally fascinated and engrossed in uh, in American politics and in you know what was happening in our country. I mean, it was, it was hard to look away at that point. And at that point, I was still selling software for a living. This is 2015. Um, so I decided to myself, I said, this is too fascinating for me to not do it for a living. So I'm going to figure out mm-hmm. a way to get into journalism. Um, and so I said, I started looking around at, at people that I looked up to, um, you know, in, in politics, people like Ann Coulter and Tucker Carlson and those types. And a lot of them have uh, law degrees. So I decided I would go to law school. Uh, and while I was in law school, I would build up a media profile and start, you know, contributing to these websites and, and uh, you know, writing pieces and doing journalism on the side and so forth. Um, so I did that. So I took the LSAT and applied and got into law school, and I went to law school, uh, and I executed my plan of getting involved in media, but it just happened a lot faster than I expected it to. Um, so, at, you know, at this time next, at this time last year, uh, I was, you know, was this time, I should say, you know, maybe March of last year, somewhere around there, I was finishing up my first year of law school, uh, but I was ready to, you know, I had immersed myself into it, and, and big league politics was exploding at the time and, and just starting to, you know, gain a national audience. Um, so I actually left school, proud law school dropout, and, um, and I, I started writing, doing journalism for a living, and, and shortly thereafter, you know, I had been focusing on how awesome the press was. Uh, shortly thereafter, I, I got the book deal with Post Hill Press to write about um, – to write about the media, to do the enemies book. And, uh, and so I've been, I've really only been doing this. Uh, I've been writing the news for a couple of years, but I've really only been doing it mm-hmm. professionally for about a year now. Uh, so things have, have happened pretty well, quickly, which is a testament, by the way, to the American well, Peter, you can do whatever you want. This can you hear me now? Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Yes, I can. Can you hear me now? Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, we can great. Hear you. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what happened. I was in the middle of introducing his book that was just released this week called Enemies. I started to say enema instead of enemies. So I was cracking up and I didn't realize you were telling <laughs> oh, me to put <laughs> but, <laughs> Well, we need an enema from the enemies. Anyway, oh, uh, yeah. enemies, the press, versus the American people. And, you know, you lay out in the book uh, the blatant liberal tendency and the blindness the the press has had. And I I pointed that out earlier in the show because two icons of our American history passed away this past week, Uh, one of them being Justice Stevens and the other one uh, being the U.S. diplomat that was held captive in Iran for the 444 days starting in November 4th of 1979 that was Bruce uh, Langan. Uh, But you don't hear anything about that in the media. You don't hear anything about what is going on in the conservative side. You don't hear anything that we conservatives and we Republicans, we on the right, want to hear. You hear only what is being spoon-fed to us. And I find it so interesting by the power of omission in the way they have changed stories. Absolutely. And um, there's there's an entire chapter in the book about that. Uh, One of the biggest tactics now of the mainstream press is to selectively add and omit facts that are relevant to a story simply because they do not fit the desired liberal narrative. So 
It goes something like this. I have a set of six facts, all of which are are relevant to my story, but only four of those facts get me the desired outcome, which is to push the liberal narrative. So I include those four facts, and I drop the last two completely, and I uh, pretend that they don't exist because they don't help me spread the message that I want to spread. And this is the tactic that they use every single day to shape their narrative. Now, Sometimes they do blatantly lie, right? Let's, let's make that very clear. I mean, they definitely lied to the American people for three years straight and tried to convince them that their president was um, the an asset of a hostile foreign power, which was uh, not one of the smoothest things our media has ever done. Um, but it's harder for them to blatantly lie because of the dawn of the internet and people like me who can sit there and like research their claims in five seconds and say that's a lie. Right, So they had to kind of switch their tactics. They can't just blatantly propagandize anymore uh, because people like me will call them out for it. Um, so instead, what they do is they, they omit facts that don't fit their narrative and only give you the facts that do fit their narrative. Now, that's, the, that's the biggest tactic right now. Well, the, the uh, changing uh, – when they are uh, faced with someone saying, hey, listen – uh, this fact is incorrect. And they end up taking this little tiny, tiny thing on the bottom page of you know the last section of the paper or the magazine or your web page, so tiny that no one ever sees the correction because it's not important. The fact is is they're making money over the hits on the original story. If they were to put those facts right. in, if they were to put in those corrections, they're not going to make as much money. It's going to hurt their pocketbook. So let's do what is fiscally great for us and to hell with everyone else. This is what you write about, and you point this out very well in your book. That's right. So you can't even get a retraction on a blatantly false story anymore. Nobody retracts news stories anymore. It's, uh, so when, when uh, CNN accused Don Jr. of having the WikiLeaks emails 10 days before they came out, which was totally untrue, uh, and they simply got the date wrong. That's how bad CNN is, right? They said Don Jr. had the WikiLeaks emails. I think it was on September 4th of 2016, and he actually had them on uh, September 14th, which was the day that the rest of the public got them. But CNN wanted to wanted you to believe that the Trump campaign was working with WikiLeaks, so then they could try and have uh, a more direct tie to Trump and the Russians. So. In their haste to make you believe that, they got the date wrong, and they said, oh, look, Don Jr., he had these emails uh, 10 days before the public. That means the campaign was working with, uh, with WikiLeaks. Uh, and when somebody said, hey, you idiots, you got the date wrong, Don Jr. had the WikiLeaks emails on the same day as the general public after WikiLeaks released them to the general public, CNN didn't even retract the story. They just added an update and pretended like it never happened, right? So it's like – even on the most blatantly false, wrong stories, you won't see anybody in prime time, Don Lemon or Chris Cuomo or Anderson Cooper or any of those people, stand up and say, yeah, you know what, like we were wrong. Uh, sorry about that. Right? They just – they move on. They pretend like nothing happened, uh, and it's, it really is an embarrassment uh, to, to our uh, – to, to really to, to the standards of journalism. Now, I didn't go to journalism school, right? but I'm smart enough to know that if – God forbid I get something wrong, that I issue a retraction and apologize for it. Right? But our mainstream press, they won't do that because they are the arbiters of what is true and what is not true. And any, 
anything that questions that sort of balance of power, they will never admit to, right? So, you know, getting something wrong is, it's, they can't do that. They couldn't possibly get anything wrong. They are the truth, you know? Um, it's, it's a really embarrassing time, I think, to be a mainstream press journalist, 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 because you have to buy into this narrative that they are always correct about everything, even if they get it wrong. Well, I, I have, I happen to be old enough to remember that when you sat down to watch the news, you got the news. You didn't get commentary. You didn't get opinion pieces. At the end of the show, they may have someone do a five- or ten-minute opinion piece, and that would be at the end, just before the show went off the air and the national anthem played. But you got hard-hitting facts and news, and then you make up your mind as to where you stand on an issue. And that changed during the Vietnam War. Then one day, Walter Cronkite, the Cronkite, God, I cannot talk today. The God of the news. He was the man, the man that you trusted to get your news from, made his opinion known on the Vietnam War. That day forward, news stopped being just news. And over the years, it's morphed. And now it's gotten to the point where it is so bad that you have CNN, the cable news network, which was the pioneer in news, on cable, and at that point, they were still giving you news. They have become part of the story, in so much as they've gotten themselves involved in this, uh, being involved in the individuals that attacked the ICE, uh, in, uh, a, oh, that location in Arizona where they took down the American flag and hung the Mexican flag. They sat down with some of these people and were trying on their brass knuckles and switchblades. I mean, when did you stop reporting the news and become part of the story? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, they are—they are not journalists. They are activists, right? They're—they're they're masquerading as objective reporters, but that's not what they are. I mean, they are all leftists, and it's partly a product of academia, right? Because you go to journalism school, and you have all these leftist professors, and so you learn the leftist dogma, and then you get sent out to you know whatever your local you know. NBC station or CBS station is, and if you want to rise up through the ranks and be on national TV, then you have to move even further to the left and buy into the leftist dogma and show them that you know you are sufficiently a leftist enough. Um, so that's really where the, the, the activist molding uh, comes into play, you know. Or you know, similarly, that's what happens if you work at like a you know an ever dwindling print media world, right? Uh, but these people are are absolutely embedded in the movements that they're re reporting on. I mean, there's a, there's a Teen Vogue reporter uh, who is a member of Antifa who, who blatantly defended the guy who tried to blow up the ICE facility with Molotov cocktails over last weekend. And she was, she was online defending this guy saying, oh, well, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of misinformation going around. Um, he actually only tried to blow up the ICE vehicles, not the whole center. And then you Google her name, and she's like an, she's part of Antifa. She's an, an Antifa activist who also happens to do journalism for Teen Vogue. Uh, and so she's, you know, not only is she not an honest reporter, but she's also like teaching our youth that it's okay to resort to political violence, uh, you know, when when you think that there's some injustice happening. Um, it, it, the whole the whole system is is purely an embarrassment. Um, when 
when I really realized that these people supported the violent, radical left, and I wrote about this in the book, it's the first chapter, uh, was when I was covering an Antifa rally at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill, uh, where they, the, the Antifa group pulled down the Silent Sam statue. The Silent Sam statue was a, a monument to the, to the Confederate soldier. And so uh, the professors there at the school taught them that it was a symbol of white supremacy, and thus it must be destroyed. Um, so I was covering those rallies, and this was a week after the, the, the statue had been pulled down, but uh, they continued to go at it for whatever reason. And I was in the middle of the mob, uh, just filming. You know, That's all I was doing. Um, and they didn't take kindly to that, right? Because they knew I wasn't one of them, and I had you know, press credentials on, and so forth. And uh, and so I ended up getting beaten by the mob and and hit on the head like three times and pushed to the ground. And the police came in and separated. And eventually I pressed charges and, and so forth. Um, but then, you know, a couple months later, Huff Post wrote a hit piece on me saying that it was my fault that I got beat up for reporting the news because I was instigating, and I was instigating simply by uh, filming, I mean doing my job as a reporter. right? So I realized at that point that the press was, was on the side of the people who will you know, end the free press if they get the opportunity and, and who are you know, radical far leftists when I was blamed simply for doing my job. And unfortunately, I mean, you're exactly right. It's, it's, these people are all part of the same apparatus. There is no distinction between the activist left and journalists. The journalists view themselves uh, as they, – they view their jobs as uh, an opportunity to destroy uh, Donald Trump. You know, they view their, their job as uh, – as, they actually view that as a job requirement, right? It's like how can I get Trump today? It's, it's really embarrassing. It is, and it, it's funny because the hypocrisy that lives between those of us that may be Donald Trump supporters, even if you're not, if you sit on the Christian conservative side and you, you believe in what our nation and its constitution stands for, we're, we are the racists, we are the Nazis, and God forbid you do support Trump, then you are definitely a racist and a Nazi. But if you're there with Antifa, if you're there supporting illegal aliens, you're the good guys. So then you have people like Don Lemon and other CNN commentators that will turn around and make it as if simply because you stepped out of your house wearing a MAGA hat, you were triggering people, you were inviting uh, violence, you deserved whatever happened to you. And, and the story yep. coming from the left and 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 people are actually buying it. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm driving around with the MAGA hat in the back uh, window of my car. I have a surgical procedure last month in the heart of liberal Savannah, and I told my husband, do me a favor. Take the hat out of the window because I'm going to be here overnight. I don't want to come back to the car tomorrow when you take me home and find the car smashed up. Just do me the yeah. favor. So they're forcing us to modify our lives to protect our property and our persons. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Um, and the the interesting part about that is that all of these movements uh, that have been successful on the left have been premised on this idea that, like, um, it has no impact on your life as a conservative, right? So a prime example of that being the gay rights movement, right? It's like, uh, well, who do you what, – what do you care if uh, – or who somebody, you know, shares a bed with in their private – 
you know, home. And, and to some extent, that's true. But then what has been the product of the gay rights movement? Now we have like teachers forcing transgenderism on five-year-olds, like in our public school systems. And so it's like, well, yeah, now it is my problem, right? Because just like you said, you've forced me into this paradigm where it does affect me, right? Like, yeah, maybe I didn't care in the beginning, but now I have to care because you're trying to impose your lifestyle on me. Uh, and this is, this is what the left does. Once you give them an inch, they take a mile. I mean, it's happened over and over and over again, I mean, right? So, you know, abortion is, is another, and I know you guys are, are good Christians, so uh, we're on the same page on this. Abortion is another issue, right? I mean, it used to be, oh, don't worry about it. It's just abortion. Why do you care? My body, my choice. Now it's like, oh, yeah, we're going to go ahead and kill infants after they've been born. <laughs> it's like what society thinks that that's sane? It's certainly, hopefully not this one. Uh, but, yeah, this, that's the way the left operates. It's just – continue to take and take and take. And that's why we as conservatives need to go on the offensive and we need to start, uh, you know, getting back to uh, saying to these people, you are wrong. I am not ashamed to say you are wrong. And I am going to fight for the exact opposite of what it is that you're fighting for. And you can call me backwards and regressive and whatever you want, but I don't care because morally I know I'm correct. Right. So, um, I hope we can start doing that as a movement. Yeah, well, the other thing you write about in your book, because I'm looking down, our, our clock is running down, and we've had so much fun. I mean, I can have you on here for the full three hours and never cover half the subjects I wanted to do. But something else you write about, which I think is important that we address, is the idea of white privilege. All of a sudden, if you're a male, white, and, and Christian, you're supposed to shut up, sit in the corner, and let everyone else take over because you've been leading too long. Now, I, I ask this question. You know, we were talking about abortion and the idea that it's simply okay to destroy another human life, but that that child did not ask to be conceived. No matter what act committed, whether it was a criminal act or not, the child did not ask to be conceived. It did not ask what race or gender to be born into. It did not ask when you decided that child was inconvenient because you felt like, well, financially it's not good enough, or I just don't want the burden. I'm just, no, my life is too skinny. I'm going skiing next week, so no, I don't need this kid. Let's, let's get rid of it. it. It's gone from that to now. I didn't ask to be born whatever race and gender and ethnicity I am. So why are you laying a blame on who I am? I thought we were supposed to be created all equal in the eyes of God. Where where did this turn around to the opposite bias? Yeah, that's right. And and this is one thing that, that Tucker Carlson talks about often on his show and gets subsequently labeled a white supremacist for us. It's like, why are we discriminating against people for immutable characteristics that they cannot change that they are born with? Isn't this exactly what MLK said we shouldn't do during the civil rights movement? Um, and it's incredible to me that this narrative is continuously pushed by the mainstream press, that it is okay to hate white people. Right? There's a whole chapter in the book called White Hate, and it is purely examples of the mainstream press hating on white people and saying it is okay to put down white people or saying things like white genocide is a myth when it is documented that in places like South Africa, white farmers are being murdered daily uh, – in, in what is essentially turning back into an apartheid state. But if you talk about that, you're a white supremacist. 
Uh, now, I am very – I consider myself to be very fortunate in this movement because I am half Arab to where I can get away with talking about this, and if somebody calls me a white supremacist, I get to call them an idiot, right? Um, I get to tell them <laughs> that I must be the first – I get to tell them that I must be the first Arab white supremacist in history, right? Uh, but for you know the average white person, it is kind of terrifying. They have to sit around and take this. And if they do speak out, they risk everything. They risk their livelihoods. They risk their jobs. They, they risk their family life. I mean, you cannot be uh, a, conser- a true conservative. You cannot be a conservative in this country uh, who does not support illegal immigration or immigration at all uh, anymore. That is not an acceptable opinion to have. And if you have that, especially as a white male, your livelihood can be destroyed, and it is destroyed by people in the media, right? The media will go out and find you, and they will dox you, and they will, they will figure out where it is that you work, and they will call your employer and say, did you know that your employee holds this opinion? And you will get fired and lose your job. That is a terrifying prospect that the entire news media complex is so anti-white that they will ruin somebody's life in an attempt uh, to silence them from having their political beliefs. But unfortunately – in 2019 in America, that's where we're at, which is why you know, I really encourage uh, every single person on, on our side to just blow these people off completely. And I say this all the time, right? When, when, when they call you names, when they call you racist, just blow them off. Just move on. Just pretend that they don't exist because you're not a racist, right? You're not a racist for holding conservative beliefs. When they call you a racist, they're just trying to get you to shut up. This is Andrew Breitbart's big thing back in the day. You might remember this whole thing was like walk towards the fire, right? It doesn't matter what they call you because they're wrong, because they're only doing it to silence you. Um, so I hope you know if there's any message that people will take away from this podcast other than you should definitely purchase my book, um, I hope that's the <laughs> message you take away is to walk towards the fire. You know, just keep pressing forward. Be a conservative. You have nothing to be ashamed about. Don't let them – you know, don't let their name calling bother you. It doesn't. It doesn't mean anything anymore. They've overused all the terms. Well, I I would add something to that because this is something I did just last week because we had in my local town one of these pro illegal alien uh, uh, protests and they were going, oh, you're racist, you know, this and that, and I, they must have had a crowd of about maybe sixty five people and they were doing this march over the uh, drawbridge to bring attention to the plight of the illegal alien at the border. So they had all these liberal bleeding hearts, and a bunch of us from my Tea Party group and a, a couple of others had gotten together and said, right, fine, how are we going to deal with this? And I said, listen, they're over there doing their speeches. They turned off their microphones so we couldn't hear what was being said, and we're all wearing mega hats and stuff. And I said, listen, hmm. we're gonna, they have to pass this corner. They're going to come through this part of the street. So what we're going to do is stand on the opposite corner. We're not going to impede them. We're not going to catcall them. We're not going to say anything derogatory. We're going to stand here and do nothing but sing God bless America, wave our hats, wave the flag, which is what we did. And, you know, half those people started singing God bless America with us. Wow. <laughs> but we That's made our point. That's surprising to me. We made our point. Yeah. And I mean, there was one or two people that came out of the crowd and started to, you know, try to provoke. And uh, there was one individual that we had to actually grab on our side and said, listen, all you're going to do is sing God bless America. You're not going to respond. We're just going to 
do what we're going to do and make our point known, which is what we did. But when we go into the fire, know what armament you're going to bring with. And that armament is your heart and your brain. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Uh, we don't need to be escalating any violence. They're, they will uh, handle that on their side as they've proven you know, time and time again. Um, so it, we don't need to be violent because we have common sense on our side. right? Uh, the average ordinary person understands that illegal immigration is a problem in America, right? that there is a crisis on the southern border. I mean this is the silent majority that we always hear about. That's why they always come out on election day and vote our way. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right about that. I mean, we don't need to be swinging fists or anything like that. Uh, we simply need to hold steadfast in our beliefs and understand that, no, we are not running concentration camps for migrant detainees. And that, yes, <laughs> we do need to secure our border like every other nation on Earth. And that, uh, you know, we're, we are in, in the right on this. Uh, and then again, whatever names you're called, racist and, and xenophobe and all these nonsense terms, it doesn't really matter when it all comes down to it because all we're seeking on our side is a sane system of immigration. Right? We're not asking for a whole lot here uh, except to, to control this crisis of, of both open borders and the welfare state. I mean this country is already $21 trillion in debt. We can't have both. You know, we shouldn't have either, but we definitely can't have no. both, you know, open borders and a welfare state. Well, Peter, it has been a pleasure having you with us uh, on the show page that people, when they listen to the podcast, will see it. There's a link to your book, Enemies, the Press versus the American People. Um, they can also follow through on Amazon to also get your book on AOC. People can find you on Big League Politics. You've also had articles written into uh, Newsbusters. Oh, our friend uh, – uh, Pam Geller, Geller Report, and also a few articles up on, on Drudge. But you're mostly now, I believe, with Big League Politics, uh, which is a new uh, website, but it is one of the fastest growing, and I'm finding more and more people are quoting articles from there. Good luck, and I do want you to have come back on the show, Peter. Well, I appreciate you having me, and I'd be happy to be back. Uh, it's been great to be here. Uh, it's our pleasure, and uh, good luck with the book sales. You didn't answer if I was your first interview on the book. Uh, you were not actually. So I uh, had the book came out Tuesday, and I've had a few interviews since then. Uh, but I had you're you're definitely I think top four, first four. I have several scheduled for next week. So there's gonna be a lot of talking about books next week. It'll be fun. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, good luck, Peter. It has been it has been a pleasure, and God bless for all the hard work you do, sir. Um, thank you. I appreciate it. You guys have a good weekend. Thank you. Right. Uh, check out uh, Peter's book, uh, The Enemies, uh, The Press Versus the American People. Also, his book on Alexandria Ocaso Cortez, her mysterious rise from the bartender to congresswoman. Also, a great book to read. Check it out up on Amazon. Want to welcome a new guest onto our show, a new victim up in the bullpen. And I, I'm telling you, I hardly got through half the questions I wanted even to talk to Peter about, but I can throw them at our new guest. Rob Raskin, he is the founder of a new website that's out there to give a conservative uh, and Christian slant on what Facebook is not letting you do called ProAmericanOnly.org. Good afternoon, Rob, and welcome to the show. Rob, you with me? 
Uh, we've got Glad to be seven here. two. You're on. Ah, oh, wake up. There he Unmute is. Yourself. <laughs> here I am. Oh man. And you know, um when your your website is brand new, it came out just a short while ago and I know when it first came out I was one of the first people that signed up. I'm getting a little feedback. Do you have a speaker on in the background? Is this better? Oh, a lot better. A lot better. Okay. Uh, your site this. is fairly new. It's 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 less than a year old, and I remember I had signed up for when it first came out, and uh, there were so many other new social platforms that were coming out, such as Hub, Gab, MeWe, OneWay, and yours was another one that came out at the same time. So there's so many blossoming out there, uh, but yours has a unique take, whereas Gab lets anyone go on it, and you do find trolls that go on to the other ones. But you want to make sure that yours stays for Republicans, conservatives, and Christians, correct? Correct. Uh, The reason why I built my site is because you can't really uh, argue with with, uh, liberals. They really lack uh, the capacity for logic and reason. And so there's no way that it's worth the effort and energy to be trying to point things out to these uh, people that only operate through emotion and only know how to call you names. And so there's no sense in wasting the time, effort, or energy, uh, at least from my perspective. Uh, there's more important fish to fry than to try to turn one liberal's mind at the expense of wasting your breath and energy on a hundred of them. So when I built ProAmericaOnly.org, I built it uh, specifically Uh, for conservative viewpoints only so that I've got my fellow people that can work together and so we can share information, share ideas, and uh, and, uh, work together and not be distracted with the fighting uh, from uh, the liberals that are just trying to upset the apple cart. Uh, So I don't have any of, I don't have any liberals on my site. Well, you know, sometimes it's a great joy because when you put information out there, and you do have a troll that will attack you on these other websites. It, it distracts from the message you're trying to get to like-minded people. And that's, that's the main point about what people do on your site. Now, if you want to provoke a fight or something like that, go on to Facebook, go on to Twitter, go on to Gab, because uh, you will get that fight. You will get that pushback. But if you want to share information and get it out there, because you know mainstream media is not going to put it out there, but it, they can probably find something they're looking for on your site. Yes, and my site's been up for two years now, and we've got a lot of celebrity, uh, conservative celebrities that are listed on the site. So when you, you come to the site, not only can you read the posts from fellow conservatives, and not only can you uh, post uh, accordingly, but you can also click onto any one of the uh, celebrities that have our viewpoint and uh, like Hannity and and uh, Janine and all the rest. And so it's a very good source for information. And uh, I want to point out that when I built this site, I built this site uh, out of my pocket and I built the site with nothing for sale, no dues, no donations. It's a true site. So it's not a site like the other sites from the perspective that people built those sites to make money. This site is is built because of the fact that I'm a pure patriot, and I want to make sure that my fellow patriots uh, get accurate information 
uh, of exactly what's happening so that they are well informed. And so I'm trying to get them away from wasting their time arguing with liberals and spending more of their time uh, uh, communicating with their fellow conservatives. You know, I, I was looking when I was poking around because, you know, you've, you're not a neophyte. You're not someone that hasn't been out in the business world. You've been out there for a while. Um, you know about finance. Uh, you and your wife have built your own, I don't know what you would call it, a mini empire out there. And you've had this conservative bent with you most of your life. Uh, you had for the MAGA cats when people were starting to get bopped over the head and people bashing people for, you know, carrying signs or hats or shirts that say, make America great again. You were telling them how to deal with these situations. So you've been out there in the front of this fight on the front lines for quite a while. Yes. As a matter of fact, 10 years ago, I uh, met a good friend of mine, Craig Leonard, who's a uh, retired Navy uh, veteran. And of course I love all my veterans. He's a very close friend, but I met him 10 years ago on an overpass here in Las Vegas, uh, because I was with a bunch of uh, protesters protesting for the impeachment of Obama. And so uh, I've been I've been uh, vocal for a long time against uh, things that I perceive to be anti-American. I'm very outspoken about them. I don't apologize for them. And uh, that's uh, the, my site, Pro America Only, gives me the opportunity to be able to uh, make posts without worrying about the globalists that run Facebook. Uh, from putting me in jail, which they've done several times, because they don't like my opinion. Still America, still uh, First Amendment rights. I can still say what I want, and uh, I won't be uh, limited. So that's why I built Pro America Only. I love the site. I love the the conservatives that are on it, and uh, and I love my veterans. And I've been around for quite a while. I'm 63, so I'm I'm not a kid. <laughs> Well, you know what I find funny is because in, you are so true about needing to have a platform to get out your voice to the people you want it to go to. Because on Facebook, I've gotten to the point where I can't put an ad up anymore. I cannot advertise any of these shows whatsoever. They say you're political. Uh, it's in the description on the page. Uh, it is a page for a political group. And no, no, you can't you can't put the ads out there anymore. And if you do put an event up, you can only invite so many people. Sometimes it's only 50 people, but once in a while they're generous and they allow 250. So it becomes so frustrating when you are being censured by Facebook. And don't tell me they're not censoring conservatives. You know you don't see it on liberal postings. You see them up in the ads all the time. But heaven forbid you're a conservative like myself or like you, or some of our listeners that have their own show showing up in our, our chat room here. They know what I'm talking about. You know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these things that the vast majority of people use are closed to us. Yeah, they're definitely slanted. I mean, like I always say, the the social media, the big ones, like you just mentioned, as well as uh, the fake uh, mainstream media and uh, a good portion of uh, U.S. Congress, they're all globalist tools at this point. So uh, fighting your battle on a globalist platform is really a dead end. I mean, even uh, Judge Janine said something very true not long ago about whether a uh, elected official 
can serve America first uh, when they take their oath on the Koran. And she was thrown off the air for a week or two. And this is a top uh, person, top conservative personality that generates millions of dollars. And it just goes to demonstrate that the globalist control of the mainstream media and a good portion of our Congress, both sides, Republican and Democrat, uh, as well as all the social media that you just mentioned, they're all globalist tools. So fighting within that framework is fighting on their on their turf. It's like it's like getting into the boxing ring to fight, knowing that the referee is the uncle of the guy that you're fighting against. You're not going to win. And so uh, it's more and more and more obvious at this point. In fact, it's so obvious at this point that I don't think anybody even argues the point anymore. Yeah, it's funny because we did have Judge Jeanine on just before she got uh, she got banned uh, from uh, Fox, and then we were one of those that was out there, you know, posting to get her back on the air. Um, she was a fantastic guest. Uh, it was a lot of fun having her. Um, but it is voices like hers, and look at the audience she garners on Fox News, and it was to the point where even Fox News says you're not worth the revenue. We can afford to lose the revenue because we have all these other liberal people that are supporting us. So even Fox News is no longer truly a conservative news outlet. And you have to go to social networks, to podcasts like mine, to actually get a true conservative message anymore. It's no longer mainstream media. It's now the underground of us. Yeah, a lot of people are not aware of the fact that Disney has purchased Fox News and Disney – I mean, they've done some incredible things to raise people's eyebrows. They allowed the LBGT parade to take place in their Disney park in Paris, France. And uh, they oh, uh, put Orlando out... too. Oh, they really? Did I didn't know that too. it was Just... right here on our soil. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they've done they've done the same thing with cartoons. Uh, I mean, with their with their movies now, where they uh, have uh, uh, men kissing men for the little children to see. And I'm a hundred percent against it. I don't care what anybody says. I have, I'm entitled to my opinion and I don't like it. I think it's confusing to the kids and I'm against it. And so uh, uh, the uh, mainstream media uh, Fox specifically, now that it's been purchased by uh, Disney, you know, is compromised. And so you're exactly right. Fox is no longer uh, conservative uh, per se, it's got some conservative personalities still on it, like Hannity and Tucker and Ingram, uh, but it's definitely uh, not a conservative news organization like we would like to have so that we have one that we can count on. We don't even have one we can count on. No. No, and as my co-host just posted in the chat room that, yes, Disney did buy Fox. Matter of fact, I believe the sale was just finalized a little over a month ago because I read that in the business news when it was finalized. And so, well, there it goes to hell in a handbasket. And just before it was finalized, that was when they had the gay parade around the castle down in Orlando. And matter of fact, there was a little blurb in the news that a father removed his daughter and the, he was almost arrested because he was upset over the gay parade, and he was looking for his money back on his tickets. He said, this is not why I came to Disney. I did not bring my child to see this. It's against everything I believe in, and I thought you would be more friendly to a child. And he got himself in trouble for it and almost got arrested for it. So that's why I, I remember these things. 
But, you know, in your site, the new uh, conservative social media that people can go to for free is proamericaonly.org. And you have three guiding lines in which you base your site on. And I'm going to go in reverse because I think the last one is one of the most important ones going into the 2020 elections. And one of the things you have on your guidelines is you want to look at justice because you say there is a two-tier justice system. And if you look at that, not only as how certain members of our society and our political class are treated, but how one side of the liberal media and mainstream media are treated compared to those of us on the conservative side, uh, upset over things such as Antifa and other items like this. It, it is a two-tier social system in our society. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, if there's from my perspective, there's no argument that uh, – the emails, for example, come from Obama to Clinton and all the way through and have never been prosecuted. I don't think there's any question that the fight the warrants were uh, totally bogus. I don't think there's any question. There is no question among conservatives that Obama was never a uh, legal citizen of the United States. I would have loved for President Trump on day one to write an executive order uh, saying that since uh, Obama was not uh, born in America – he was a usurper and not a legitimate president, and everything he authorized is null and void. I would have loved to have seen that. The liberals' heads probably would have exploded. <laughs> and uh, But, yeah, there's no – there. I'm still waiting for justice, just like millions of us, and I'm still waiting for the uh, the uh, deep state for, for them to be arrested. Jeff Epstein, uh, there's no question that his uh, island – uh, has uh, housed uh, pedophile, uh, has housed children that have been kidnapped, that have been raped and tortured and mutilated and murdered and cannibalized. And uh, that information will come out over time. And there's no question that uh, according to the, to the, uh, to the paperwork, uh, Bill Clinton has been on that plane 26 times. And I believe that Hillary has been on that uh, plane seven times. And if you look up Kathy O'Brien, C-A-T-H-Y-O-B-R-I-E-N, Kathy O'Brien wrote a book about how she was uh, raped when she was 12 years old, not by Bill Clinton, but by Hillary Clinton. She was part of the MK Ultra Project. She was uh, rescued by a CIA agent who she subsequently married. She wrote a book on the subject, and uh, yet Hillary's still untouchable, Bill's still untouchable. And I'm hoping that with uh, President Trump uh, putting AG uh, Bill Barr in office and Bill Barr appointing uh, separate uh, uh, conservative-leaning or at least neutral-leaning investigators into the emails, into the Clinton Foundation, into Benghazi, into all of the different uh, travesties that, uh, that occurred under Obama with Clinton and Clinton's foundation involved and with uh, weaponizing all of our main uh, government agencies, uh, I'm hoping that finally that uh, the, the, the tears start falling. It was a great sign when the judge denied Epstein uh, bail because, the, because uh, Epstein's got billions of dollars. And, you know, he had a 13-month sentence about 10 years ago. And most people don't know that that 13-month sentence involved six days of work release. He was only in, he only had to spend one night in jail for the 13 months. And then he was released. And when he was released, 
I believe I read that Prince Andrew was the first person to visit him. And Clinton, Hillary Clinton, uh, the Clintons always said that they prefer uh, their donations when they get donations to the to the Clinton uh, Foundation, that they prefer their uh, the uh, the donations to come from Saudi Arabia and Great Britain. And the reason why the, those two countries are preferable is because they said that when they get donations from those two countries, they get part of those donations in money and part of those donations in children. And so the reason why Epstein got that such a light sentence of 13 months with six days of work release is because he had surveillance cameras that a lot of the heads of state that were there on that island did not know about. And so now uh, that he's been arrested, as I understand it, uh, New York has those uh, videos. And so they know exactly who's involved. And uh, Pelosi's daughter, I believe, is an attorney uh, for, uh, that prosecutes RICO cases in New York. And she's the one that said to her mom, there's a lot of Democratic faiths that are implicated in this. And so I think the ones that are screaming the loudest, like uh, De Niro is always screaming about Trump and uh, Mark Cuban, Cuban, who said uh, he'd give up all of his billions of dollars just for Trump not to be president. I can't imagine what they're hiding, but I think that uh, that a lot of uh, information is hopefully going to come out now that Bill Barr is the uh, AG. Well, we'll see how far it goes, because you got to remember, you've got Pelosi's daughter and now on the prosecutor's office, but you've got Andrew Cuomo as governor. So I don't see too much coming out of New York, as you suspect. Andrew Cuomo is no angel, and I've got a little personal knowledge on what type of an individual he is, and he is not as racially tolerant as people tend to think he is. He's not a nice person, to to put it politely. So whether or not anything comes out of those New York tapes, I don't think it will be under Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo is actually one of the people on the on the passenger list on Epstein's flights to Pedophile Island. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't anticipate too much under him. Unless he's out of office and it's a Republican governor and a Republican prosecutor – I don't see too much because Mama Pelosi, when she finds out what her daughter has, is going to pull her strings like she did for the Clintons when they were in trouble, like she did for the Obamas and the Valerie Jarrett's and all the other ilk, you know, Eric Holder. And you go down the whole list. You know, how many people does Nancy Pelosi have uh, the dirt on that she hasn't? As you said, it is a two-tier justice system. Had a Republican been guilty of one hundredth of what Epstein did, he would be sent to the witch's burning pile in the middle of Plymouth Rock and he'd be strung up and burnt to death. I mean, how dare? But no, no, no. It's, as you said, a two-tier justice system. Absolutely. Well, the other thing you have on your your, list Oh, good Lord. I just had a major brain fart. <laughs> the second point on my site is protecting our country. Right, protect America. Thank you. Like I said, I was having a major brain fart. I'm glad you just gave it a little <laughs> kick in the butt there. <laughs> yeah, so interestingly, but I just went to the airport here. 
Go I was going to say, interestingly, I just went to the airport here in Las Vegas the other day to pick up my grandkids, and I had to go to the gate to get them. So I had to go through security, which means I had to take off my shoes and my belt and hold my hands over my head and let them x-ray me. And then they chose to uh, frisk my wife. The girl even made the TSA agent even made a comment about, I hope she's not ticklish. And so uh, after they felt up my wife and let me put my belt and my shoes back on, I walked down to, to the gate to meet the kids, and I stopped to get a bite to eat at a, at a hot dog place called Nathan's from New York, and it just so happens that the manager was also from New York, and I'm originally from New York. So he said, uh, Brooklyn? And I said, yeah, how do you know? And we both chuckled. So we got to talking for a minute, and I said to him, you know, when I walked by those two police officers after I made it through security and put my clothes back on, it dawned on me, and I thought to ask them, did you ever think of putting just one of these machines at the border? Just one. But my wife told me to keep my mouth shut and keep walking. <laughs> but I really thought it would have been a good question, don't you? And so he started laughing, no, and I thought, you know, that would, that would be such a simple solution for the border. There's only one machine. Everybody's got to go through it. If you want a million people to go through the, board, the machine, line up from here to Guatemala. And if you're still alive when you get to the front of the line, We'll uh, send you through the machine and see if at least you're not packing. <laughs> now, just quick question. Uh, where, where in Brooklyn? Where in Brooklyn were you from? I was born in Canarsie, East 84th, between Farragut and Foster, near the big oh. Tom Pickle factory in uh, 1956. Uh-huh. All right, because I had worked in the 9-0 precinct, which was Bushwick, Williamsburg, right over the Williamsburg Bridge. And that's where I retired from. So, oh, yeah. I know where like that I is. Like I said, you can take the cop out of Brooklyn, but you can't take the Brooklyn out of the cop. And I wasn't born in the South, but I got here as soon as I could. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, I moved from but, Brooklyn you know, to you, Nassau to Suffolk and then to Vegas 42 years ago. So I've been here since 1977. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so I lived in Nassau and Suffolk also. Uh, and now I'm down here in South Carolina. But, you know, you are strong on border security and to protect America. Um, but as a friend of mine, Mike Cutler, has said, America is not just the southern and northern border. We've got 50 states that are our border states. Every territory that we have is a border because you've got every single port, uh, whether it is on an ocean, uh, a bay, uh, a gulf a lake, a river, these are all international ports. You've got the airports. Every port, every airport that takes an international flight is a port of entry. And our biggest problem is not just the southern border. It's people that overstay our visas. So what is your idea for securing our illegal a- entries? Well, that's easy. Nobody gets in until we actually enforce the laws that are on the books. And the laws that are on the books requires you to have a sponsor, and that sponsor is required to be responsible for you in terms of financial uh, support, in terms of making sure that you are uh, assimilating into the community, and to be held responsible financially and criminally if the people that they are inviting into this country to be with them Uh, are in violation of any of the laws. There should be absolutely no money, not one dollar of any program anywhere given to these people. 
And when we get to talking about the voter fraud, I'm going to talk to you about the motor vehicles and signing these people up for driver's licenses. And all they, all it is is a, is a sham to be able to uh, cast votes in their name. But the actual co- uh, conclusion to be able to prevent the, uh, the uh, illegals coming into our country is to absolutely prevent them from coming in. One thing that you can do immediately is to stop the, uh, the flow of money. So there is no money. Whereas under Obama, the American, uh, the government sites were showing people, here's how you sign up in order to be able to get uh, welfare or enable to get housing or enable to get food stamps. They don't give it to our veterans. They don't give it to Americans, but they give it to illegal aliens because they're trying to topple our country, which I'll talk about in the voter section in more detail. But there's absolutely no way that our borders should be porous. And Catholic Charities is the organization that is leading the uh, distribution of these illegals throughout the country. And uh, the laws that were set up are set up to be an absolute joke where somebody who's coming into the country illegally is given a, uh, uh, a court date in two to five years, and 90% of them never show. So we know it's a completely broken system, but unfortunately, the globalists have an unlimited amount of money because the globalists are led by Rothschild, whose net worth is estimated to be $500 trillion. And so between Rothschild and all of the globalists under him, Uh, and his Federal Reserve scam that he's been running on uh, America and on many other countries for many, many years has made him so rich that he's just basically running right over the top of us. I mean, there's an outstanding warrant for the arrest of George Soros from the country of Hungary for messing with their country over there, and yet nobody ever talks about picking up George Soros. And so where is he? He's probably... uh, uh, protected by the by Blackwater, which is the largest uh, independently owned uh, security organization uh, that I, uh, in the world. And that organization has all special forces and ex-Navy SEALs and those kinds of things. So I assume that going to, to, uh, to, to arrest George Soros would take military in order to be able to, to get it done. And if I was the president, I would absolutely do that because I would try to disrupt the globalists, and in order to cut, in order to, to disrupt them, you got to cut off the head of the snake. And the head of the snake is the Rothschild family, but under the Rothschild family, Soros is the most active one. But if you take out Soros, you bring him in, and you bring Obama in, and you bring Clinton in, and you put these people in Guantanamo, Guantanamo uh, Bay, the next thing that's going to happen is that a lot of the people under them are going to get real nervous real quick, and they're going to start running. And uh, while they have their passports, well, you know, they really should. Yeah. Uh, well, George Soros is somewhere in flyover country. I don't know why Indiana, uh, Illinois or something like that is, is ringing a bell because uh, he does have his private security. Uh, but if I remember correctly, Warp in the chat room points out that there is a rush form for him out of Paris. I do believe there was an indictment out of the U.K. because he crashed the pound a number of years ago. He would do that to make his money. He would crash the currency of that nation so he could make his extra billions. 
uh, Soros has a lot to answer for. Uh, whether or not it ever will happen, I don't see it because he's in his little cave so well surrounded by his security and people that are so accustomed to cleaning up his messes. Um, he's like a, that black widow spider in the center of the web that you're never going to get to. And it's unfortunate, but you know, as, as you talk about these issues about our attack on our sovereignty from all different types of sources, not just from Soros, but from other areas too. I mean, you got to look at how much communism has become so entrenched in our society. It used to be you call someone a communist and it was a dirty word. If you were known to be a communist, you couldn't get a job. But now you've got an, an ideal, a political uh, ideology that is so antithetical to our American foundation, to our declaration and to our constitution, and yet we allow it to prosper. If anything would destroy the socialistic and communistic ideals coming out of people like the, the, the mad squad, which is what I call them, the new mad squad, uh, coming out of them. It's, it's acceptable. You've got Bernie Sanders, an avowed communist who did his honeymoon in Moscow. How much more of a communist can you get? He thinks it's such a wonderful nation. And yet they're entrenching these ideals here in the heart of, of America. Yeah, and what they're doing is they're looking to pick a fight with at least 100 million Americans that have at least 500 million firearms and a trillion bullets. And there's at least 14 million veterans who are part of that 100 million who are skilled and trained and know how to fight. And so these people that can't decide which bathroom to use really better think twice because if they keep pushing, there's a saying that I often use by Thomas Jefferson in 1775 who said from time to time the tree of liberty needs to be replenished with the blood of patriots and tyrants. And sometimes, even in a civilized society, sometimes there is not a civilized solution to be able to resolve an issue. And so uh, the liberals and the globalists, if they're pushing for uh, a conflict, and they are because they have Antifa uh, beating people over the head and they – some of them have concrete in their Starbucks coffee cups so that they look like they're drinking coffee, but they can crush the head of the Trump supporter for wearing an MAGA hat. They're hitting them over the head with, uh, with crowbars, and, uh, and Antifa is running uh, in the streets blatantly in, uh, in Portland with the mayor refusing to tell the police to restore order. I can only imagine being a policeman in Oregon watching Antifa causing all of this harm and all of this damage. And we know that Antifa is a Soros-funded uh, organization, which is a globalist organization, which is attempting to absolutely upset the apple, apple cart. And I know I heard just at the very end of the prior uh, conversation when I picked up and was listening to the, to the prior call, uh, somebody said that violence is never the answer. And I'd simply like to point out that America was liberated by people with guns. And so America stands tall and proud today because our founding fathers fought. They didn't write letters. They didn't bang on their keyboards. They fought for freedom. And if it continues to get worse, then I would absolutely advocate that the 3%, which is the, the 3% that fought in the revolution, in the uh, in the to, br to break free from uh, from Great Britain, 
that they estimated that only 3% fought, uh, I absolutely would advocate that the um, militias that exist throughout the United States, and there are many of them, that if the time comes that we need to protect ourselves, that we don't hesitate to do so to make sure that America remains free, remains capitalist, remains a republic, and remains intact. Well, just to put the conversation in in perspective when you were there, we were talking about a peaceful protest where we had some people supporting illegal aliens and the raids that were being put out there by ICE. And we, on the other hand, were supporting Trump and his policy. So in that context where you have dueling protests at that point, we were saying, you know, violence at that point was not necessary. But as the declaration um has states it says imprudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes and accordingly all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer when evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed and then this is where you and i will agree but when a long train of abuses and usurpations pursuing invariably the same object Convinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism. It is their right. It is their duty to throw off all such government and to provide new guards for their future security. We absolutely agree 100%. So, you know, in, in, in an instance where we're talking about two peaceful demonstrations, yes, you do not want it to escalate to violence. But when it gets to the point where we say, this is it, this is the line drawn in the sand, like our founding fathers did, when only 10% of our colonies actually participated in one form or another in the revolution. It's the same today. How many people actually go out there and really, truly vote? How many people actually participate in their political parties or in a political discussion? It's so hard to go out there in public and have a political discussion because of the violence you may be met with should you open your mouth. And it's less than 10% of our society at this point. Yeah, one of the things that really upsets me is that every day uh, children now through uh, their third uh, trimester are being murdered. And so we are a peaceful country trying to resolve issues by civilized means. And while we're doing so, right now while we're talking, innocent children are being murdered. And so from my perspective, if those children are being murdered and we are allowing it, when we go to bed and when we wake up and when we check the news and we see that states like New York allow for infanticide when the children are after they're born, if they don't, uh, if the mother doesn't want to give them uh uh, medical attention, the medical, uh, the staff are not allowed to provide that attention until that baby starves to death. Uh, if we continue to allow that, then we have blood on our hands. And, uh, you know, so I'm not, you know, the kind of guy, I mean, I'm like everybody else. I'm married. I got kids. I got grandkids. I work. I've got nice things. I got a nice life. I'm going out to dinner tonight. The last thing I want to do is stop my life to go fight. But the this is way past anything that our founding fathers would ever have allowed. And that's just one issue, having nothing to do with all the other issues. Just that one issue, you're murdering children, and we're allowing it because we're saying, oh, well, what can we do? What we can do is we can physically get 
involved in making sure that those children are safe and that the people that voted to allow the murder of children are removed from office by any means necessary. And so uh, those are strong words, and I mean them. I, I, uh, I get up every day, and I just look at well, our country continuing to decline, and it's very, very uh, infuriating. Well, Rob, you know, here's something, because we started off the show uh, with this, because I, I start off each and every show with our opening announcements and then the dedication to a fallen hero. But one of the things I stressed for those that were not listening in the first half hour of the show that this coming Sunday, July 21st, if you are in the South Carolina, Charleston area, please get out there. They are having a fundraiser, catch this, Rob, including about a dozen restaurants and businesses from the Charleston area, raising public funds for the Charleston Planned Parenthood. They are having a bake sale, which would be centered around the two restaurants. TU is the name of the restaurant, TU Restaurant at 430 Meeting Street in downtown Charleston. The counter-protest is being put forward by AmericaNeedsFatima.org. And if those who don't know who Fatima is, it's a Lady Fatima, our Blessed Virgin Mary, the Madonna. As you've known anything about Christianity, the Lady Fatima appeared before those children in Portugal, so she is known as the Lady of Fatima. They are having a counter-protest, which will be a prayer protest. Uh, so get out there, and hopefully it will disrupt enough people going there to buy these baked goods from these different businesses supporting Planned Parenthood. It will make enough people feel guilty to not buy the goods and to walk away. So, Rob, there's many ways for us to fight, and these are some of the ways we're doing it. Absolutely amazing. And, you know, in California, there was a group that I think it's called Veritas that went undercover and actually uh, recorded a conversation with someone from Planned Parenthood who was bragging about selling the body parts of these fetuses and how they keep the fetuses alive until they can harvest the parts. Well, he was fined $195,000 for he was yeah, fined and, and $195,000. Yeah, I had the pleasure of meeting James. I've had the pleasure of uh, interviewing him one-on-one, face-to-face. And he does great work. And people can go to Project Veritas to find out about his undercover that he did with Planned Parenthood and about the baby uh, parts. And one of the things I'm glad you brought up, James O'Keefe, because it had a lot to do with voter tampering. And this is the last thing that you have on your website, which is – OAmericaOnly.org, you talk about and work extensively in exposing voter fraud on there. And one of the things I like about your website, you have a section for states on there, and you can click in the state that you live in. And when you go onto that, you can give people the names of, of those that are their elected officials that support the conservative movements and the ideals that we stand for. But you also give other information out there on the state that people can delve into to find out what's going on and how they can become active. Right, Rob? Am I looking at this right or wrong? Yes, that's 100% correct. Because um, you talk about the federal voter ID law. Uh, and also the motor voter, which is what I can't stand. I, I hate that motor voter because 
I've been in the motor vehicles here in my own state of South Carolina, and I know this is what they do up in New York. They hand the person the voter registration and in some the motor vehicle registration. And in some cases, that box is already checked off on that individual without asking them if they are a legal resident or if they are a citizen of the United States. Now, you need to give them a utility bill or something to show that you live where you are, but they don't ask you for anything to prove your your citizenship. Yeah, and this is the, uh, the, the main topic that I wanted to make sure to get across today, which is in my 40 years, since 1985, so, so uh, I guess uh, 34 years, I have had computer programmers working for me in different capacities. So I know what I'm talking about, and I can tell you, with absolutely no doubt of any kind that if I was George Soros, and so I had an investment in many of the voting machines, which is exactly what he has, I guarantee you that I would be saying to my programmers, I want you to go in and scrape the motor vehicle database, take the people that are in that database that, are, uh, that, that have a driver's license, and make sure that they are registered Democrat, and then on election day, cast a vote for them. So what I'm warning today, and what I've been working on, and I've been sending my message to everybody from Donald Trump to A.G. Barr to, to uh, Tom Fitton, you name it, and I've been sending it. What my message is today is that it doesn't matter if the illegals are deported. It doesn't matter if they're jailed. It doesn't matter whatever happens to them. Once they are registered in that database, once they're in the database and the information is in there, any computer programmer worth his salt can cast a vote on their behalf on Election Day. And one of the ways that I know that this is the case is that in Los Angeles, where there's over 10 million people at this point, just in Los Angeles County, you do not see lines going out to the ocean or all the way down to San Diego. And when the voter polls close, it's not like there were millions of people that were still waiting to vote that are disenfranchised. The majority of these illegals don't speak English well. They don't read English well. And they're not uh, people that are going to get the book of who's, vo- who's running and find out where the address is to be able to get there and do their, their duty as an American non-citizen to vote. Most of these people don't vote. And yet the votes are being swayed in every state where they are allowing it. And so the 10 states that allow illegal aliens to have driver's licenses are New York, California, Washington, Colorado, New Mexico, Nevada, Illinois, Hawaii, Delaware, Connecticut, plus the District of Columbia. And those 10 states plus the District of Columbia are all blue. Every single one of them. Nevada, where I live, just turned blue, all blue. The governor, the senator, the House, and, uh, and the Senate for the state of Nevada all turned blue in 2018. And yet when Trump was out here for his rally, I was at the rally with my lovely wife and our press secretary. There were thousands of people inside and thousands of people outside. In contrast, when uh, the, the big people like Biden and, uh, and uh, Obama and uh, – and Clinton came out to try to rally support for the Democratic candidates. They did so. Uh, some of them had were in Chaparral High School's gymnasium that held 200 people. And so there's no way 
that the vote is a legitimate vote. Those votes are manufactured. They're contrived. And I can point to three Rob. cases. Yes. Well, go ahead and finish with your three cases, and I have a question for you. Okay, I can point to the three cases real quickly. One is that in Florida, DeSantis and uh, Scott carried the day, both Republican. And yet there was a question on the ballot, whereas 1.4 million felons were given back the right to vote. Now, in the first place, Republicans don't normally vote to restore voting rights to felons because most of the felons lean Democrat. But the majority of felons don't even vote. And I know this because of my business experience for years. Very few of them register to vote, get the book, go down and vote. So giving them back the right to vote is really just an opportunity for the globalists to scrape the database, take those felons, register them as Democrat, and vote them internally. And I think we're going to have a big problem in Florida in 2020, even though Florida will be majority Republican, just like it was majority Republican for DeSantis and Scott. The second thing I want to point out is Sinema versus McSally in Arizona. Arizona is a Republican state. McSally was a fighter pilot in the military. Sinema, her platform was that if somebody left America to go fight in with ISIS, that that uh, person would be welcome back in the United States. And when the voting closed, McSally was ahead. And then as they continued to manufacture votes, Sinema ended up winning. There's no way that that should have been a legitimate result in Arizona in a Republican state. And the third one was Romney. Romney ran against Wilson in, uh, in Utah. Romney's not liked in Utah. Maybe he won, maybe he didn't. He had a lot of money behind him. But the point I want to make is that the polls closed in Utah at 7 o'clock. And at 7.10, Brett Baer was on Fox saying, with 8% of the polls reporting, we can now uh, state that Mitt Romney will be the next uh, senator for the state of Utah. Now, the only way with 8% in that they are already announcing it is if they have a crystal ball or they know the results. And in fact, the night before the election in, on Fox News, they put up a graphic showing that Gillum was beating DeSantis, 2,927 to 2,860,000 votes with 90, 99% reporting. And then they subsequently reported that that was just an error. They were checking their system. And so... That was a graphic, a fake graphic make, on the fake news the night before the election. Well, before before Curtis asks his question, I just want to make uh, one point and then you know, one other thing I want to mention. Uh, the graphic that you're talking about wasn't on Fox. It was actually MSNBC, and it went up for about a 10-second period up on MSNBC. And then that's when afterwards they said, oh, we were testing the equipment. It was just a mistake because it ended up a woman <clears> – <throat> tweeted the graphic up on Twitter, and she ended up being excoriated because she posted it. She got herself into a, a whole mess of stuff with the liberals going after and doxing her. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, two things I want to mention about California and Arizona is that they have very unusual absentee ballot procedures. California now has something called 
harvest voting. Uh, where Arizona doesn't exactly have harvest voting, but it has something similar to what happened with McSally in that race, votes seem to keep on turning up from absentee voters. Uh, so we're going to look at the absentee voters on the this show just a little bit. But Curtis, go ahead with uh, your question there. Go ahead. Yeah, my question is this: <clears throat> It's a system that corrupt that they're not they're not following this, monitoring it, or whatever. And I'm talking about organizations like the FBI and and customs and whoever you know charge of um you know voter registration that's my question and my answer is absolutely and uh the, what needs to happen is that an independent team of forensic investigators need to look at the three areas that I mentioned to see where those votes actually came from and whether or not they're legitimate. And I guarantee you that they won't. When I asked my programmer, this was just last week, if it was possible for, uh, to break into one of those machines, he just chuckled and said, it's already been demonstrated that a 10-year-old can do it in 15 minutes. So, yes. So the, the, the system is totally uh, fraudulent, and the globalists are coming after our country, which is obvious, And here's what I'm concerned about and the reason why I'm dedicating my time to voter fraud. I believe that on November 3rd of 2020, we're going to be disappointed with the results. Even though we're a majority Republican, we're we're majority and overwhelmingly behind Trump, and we're majority uh, uh, no way that we could possibly lose in a legitimate election because of the fact that they have so many illegals spread out throughout the country – on the various roles so that they could be scraped and voted, I believe we're going to be very disappointed with the results on November 3rd. And I would encourage President Trump not to step down and relinquish authority, which is what Hillary was trying to bait him to do, which is uh, would you not accept the results no matter what they are? And he danced around that point. And the reason why he danced around that point is because he knows that it's a fraudulent system But I think that between last year and this year, uh, between 18 and 20, uh, the the system is getting much worse, much more corrupt. And the reason why I point to that, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, NPVR. Absolutely, because uh, because we happen to be friends with Bobby Lawrence, who runs the website protectyourvoteusa.org. We have been on this issue for the last couple of years. As a matter of fact, here in the state of South Carolina, I stopped it in the Judicial Committee in both the House and the Senate with the members I know on those committees, and it's not coming onto the floor in the state of South Carolina, period. We're very, very familiar with the National Popular Vote Compact. Yeah. Yeah, he was there. 196 week. votes in 16 states at this point, and the last four of them, Colorado, Delaware, New Mexico, and Oregon, were all this year, 2019. So they're picking up steam, exactly. and their goal, and it, like as you know then, if you know it, then their, their goal is to definitely put together a coalition of 270 electoral votes, get enough uh, votes for the popular vote to go to the – um, to the globalist candidate, and then cast the electoral votes in favor of the of the uh, globalist candidate, and then once they do that, uh, have it uh, be fought out in the Supreme Court. And the problem with the Supreme Court is most people think it's five four 
conservative, but it's not. John Roberts is, is, a, is a globalist plant. He's the one that banged Obamacare through, and he's the one that just blocked the census question. So he can't be counted yeah. on. So it's really not 5-4 conservative. It's really 4-4 with uh, Roberts, who can't be trusted to uh, side with the liberals. Yeah. No, Absolutely. But there is good news out there because there are two states looking to overturn the uh, legislation within their state. Uh, I believe one was there's legislation out there in Pennsylvania to overturn it, and Colorado has an initiative also on the ballot to overturn it. So we may end up be able to turn two states back red. So, you know, we're out there. We're, we've got our troops on the ground. Bobby Lawrence has got his foot on the, on the pulse of the nation, foot, his finger on the pulse of the nation. Uh, it's still he doesn't have financing. He doesn't have a nationwide network. He's been doing it state by state by reaching out to people. But I think it's time it starts to come out of the shadows. And I think it's time Bobby Lawrence is going to be moving this forward. So it becomes more of a popular national movement. So there's hope out there, Rob. You know, it's not all doom and gloom yet. Not yet. Well, we've got hope. Well, please pass my please pass my name uh, over to him so that we can hopefully get together and uh try to help make good things happen so that in advance of November 3rd of 2020, uh, we don't deteriorate because that's going to be the flashpoint. I mean, uh, you got Antifa, you got the, uh, the, the conservative protesters, you got minor scuffles, you got a lot of people not, you know, really engaging. And I understand that. I think it's going to get worse in uh, Portland. They have, I believe, August 17th, uh, there's a, uh, uh, another uh, protest, anti-protest up there. And I know the uh, Antifa uh, people were saying that they were going to bring acid this time, and some of the conservatives were saying we're bringing uh, firearms this time. So at some point, there's definitely going to be a, an armed conflict, but it would still be a small armed conflict. But on November 3rd, 2020, if we attempt to lose control, if they, if they attempt to wrest control of this country by voter fraud means, which is the only way they can do it, I cannot imagine this country not – deteriorating into pandemonium and that's why i'm working so hard because i don't want to do anything but enjoy my pool and enjoy the rest of my days but there's no way that this country is going to have kamala harris or joe biden or any of those clowns as president and uh, we can't afford to have uh, more uh, aocs or more omars or any of those people that are sworn enemies of america in our government we just can't have it well, you know, there's there's one other thing I'm seeing, and I know it's happened here in the state of South Carolina, because you were talking about hacking into the voting system. And I had a clip I used to play uh, several times a number of years ago from a gentleman that was testifying in Chicago, and he was one of those programmers for the voting booth machines. And he told in court, in sworn testimony that you can probably find up in YouTube, and I'll, I'll have to see if I can dig it up. It's, I know it's in one of my archive files that he was testifying how easy it was to hack into the voter system. This was for the 2008 uh, election system he was talking about, the hanging chads we had with Bush and Gore. And he went and told about how the, easy it was and how these machines were coming out of France and how the companies were tied into George Soros. And it was a whole big uh, sticky situation that he described in the court. But what we're finding now is that people are, are getting onto the idea that if these systems can be hacked, people can then change the votes. And we understand that. Here in the state of South Carolina, they just passed legislation and they're putting forward these machines that's actually a two-step. 
It does not have any access whatsoever to the Internet or to an intranet. It is completely offline, each machine. And the voter goes in, they look at the touch screen, they make their choices, and then they hit the button to say these are the choices. Actually, what happens is a little ballot, a paper ballot, is then printed out. The person then looks at that paper ballot and says, yes, these are all the things I choose. If not, then they go back to the election official and redo the whole thing and get the correct uh, choices. You then take that ballot to another machine that has a scanner on it, and you scan that ballot into the machine. It goes into a slot. So now there's an electronic copy of your vote, and there's a paper copy that matches that vote. So now here in the state of South Carolina, we can say, all right, fine. This is the electronic tally. You don't think it's right? Here are the paper ballots. Let's match them up. And I think states are starting to look at machines like this and maybe starting to institute it in time for the next election. Let's cross our fingers and hope. Yes, absolutely. The uh, the 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 issue, the problem with the the problem point with that is that if all of those votes from all of those machines that are absolutely clean and correct go into a database, at some point that database results going into that little fake graphic on the fake news media, that number needs to be verified. And so if that number says 2,927,000 per gillum, and, uh, and so he's won with 99% of the votes, the question is, where is the backup? So in other words, 2,927,000 in Florida. So how many came from Miami? How many came from Tampa? How many came from South Miami? Where is the correlation to go back to make sure that the numbers are being that are being reported are the actual numbers that are coming from the precincts because it, they're not connected. I can that's have my paper I can tell my yeah, but they have to be well, reconciled. That's the paper I don't know. That's the backup. Yeah, I just don't that's, know how they the can paper, be reconciled when, you, when you, ten you, minutes after the vote the vote closes, they're announcing that with forty three percent, with sixty eight percent, there's no way that they can possibly be doing anything but. But reporting the tally, they're not there. Where is the reconciliation? That's got to take time. Well, if well, I'm that's, not that's mistaken, where you get the challenge. Um, that's where the legal. This is the legal court challenge then, because if, if one of the candidates say something's wrong here, because I know I polled in this area, I know the voters, I know how I polled here. I think this is wrong. So you then do the challenge. You go through the steps of the challenge. So, yes, it takes a little time. But in the end, we will get the correct result with using a system very similar to what we have now in the state of South Carolina. Well, well I hope they what happened quickly in Florida, to put them everywhere. What happened in Florida, I believe, is that a couple of boxes of extra ballots showed up. And yeah. they caught it <laughs> yeah. before they were counted. Oh, yeah. And I think that's probably why Gillum didn't win. Oh, I don't know. All I, I know is part know, of, I think it was part of the scheme. I yeah, don't know. All I know is that there's so many. There's well, so many results guys suspect about, about, as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so many suspect results. And this is why we've got to find that when these elections are coming on, we have a system in place that has its checks and balances. And I, I see those of us in the silent majority are calling for it, and we're seeing changes in the system. I'll bet slow. But then you have the converse side where you have California with the vote harvesting. 
And this, I don't know if you're aware of what was going on in California in the last election cycle, is that California passed a law that now if you have an absentee vote and you want to vote absentee, it used to be, yeah, yeah, you get the ballot, you fill out the ballot, and then you return it to the official center. You turn it to an official from the election committee or the election office. It was from point A to point B, no one in between. Unless you were someone that was homeward banned, and then you had, say, for example, a uh, a member, immediate member of your family, whether it's a spouse, a child, a sibling, would then say, yes, so-and-so authorized me to return this ballot. So it's going from the invalid directly to me, directly to you, and no one in between. California passed a law. You now have all these people in between, so that ballot can go to any Tom, Dick, and Harry in between. And, oh, by the way, if you don't speak English and you don't understand the ballot or if you just don't feel like going out and vote, I'll bring the ballot to you, and I will help you fill that ballot out. So you you don't feel like voting. All right, here's the ballot. I'll fill it out for you. You just sign it, and I'll take it in for you. Do you see any problems with this? Do you wonder why certain counties and certain seats that were solidly red in California overnight turned blue? Do we have a problem here? And with your absentee ballots you saw in Arizona with McSally, do you think that problem is now in your state too? Absolutely. And as a matter of fact, uh, Harry Reid, when he ran the last time, he was interviewed on television and the the, uh, reporter asked him, uh, are you concerned about re-election? It doesn't seem like you have the overwhelming support of the people of the, of the state of Nevada. And he looked at the reporter, he tilted his head, he smirked, and he said, and I quote, the people don't elect me. That was his exact quote. <laughs> so blatant. Let's, let's just not hide the fact that everything is right here. Let's just Say it out in the open because really no one's going to pay attention and no one cares anymore. Well, I think a lot of people have, uh, you know, uh, given up. In other words, they think, what can we do? And what we can do is the same thing we did uh, in, uh, in 1776. And that's the fight. Sometimes there's not a civilized solution. And uh, even though we're civilized people, we cannot continue to allow them to invade our country with illegals, bringing in disease, running up our debt, transferring them to all kinds of states, registering them in the the government databases so that they can vote, killing our children, going against our churches and our values and everything we hold dear, embarrassing us on a world stage. At some point, it has to stop. And we've let them in. We've let them get too strong. We've let them start taking over, and now at this point, I'm not sure that there is a civilized solution to taking our country back. Well, we have to start with the rule of law, and as we say a lot, is that all politics are local. So if we can get our local sheriffs, our local law enforcement, and our local municipal governments to enforce our laws, whether it's E-Verify, whether it's they pull someone over for a moving violation, verifying their identity, and, you know, along the way, ask the question, are you an American citizen? Are you a legal alien within this country? Uh, these questions should be allowed to ask. 
And if you're not allowed to legally ask them, why not? Let's get those laws changed. And it starts at the grassroots level. And it's not going to reach the national level unless we start down here. And once it's passed down here, we move it up the food chain to the state. And from the state, we push it through the federal. It takes time and it's a fight. But we've got to start here at home. Yeah, I just don't know that there's enough time left. Oh, well, maybe not so. for this election cycle, but I think there's always time at this at, at where I stand in my life. I think we've got lots of time to start turning the tide back. Look at the backlash uh, we're getting from the new mods, Mad Squad. You know, people are finally looking at them to seeing them what they are. We're starting to hear in the news questions about AOC and about Ilhan Omar, about their backgrounds, their past, uh, whether or not Ilhan Omar is actually a legal resident, whether or not that's actually her real legal name, uh, about the bigamy marriage she had. These things are starting to come out in the news, and people are starting to question whether or not it goes through the entire media. I don't know if there's enough there to start the snowball going. But something else we have to look at, it, not just that, is that the effect of Facebook and Google on our election systems, because you mentioned Project Veritas before, and our friend James O'Keefe, he was recently at the social media summit at the White House, and he released, actually he re-released a report on Google, which undercovers, um, shows up an undercover video from Google, leaked documents and testimony from a Google insider that shows how they influenced the last election and what they're putting in place to prevent Trump from being reelected. The effect of that, this social media, and it shows that maybe somewhere between 2.6 million and maybe as upwards as maybe 10.5 million votes were affected and went pro-Hillary because of their influence on social media and changing the votes. This alone should make people scared. Yeah, and then they say that Hillary won by 3 million votes after they have millions of illegals in the country and they've got all of these organizations intentionally working to try to sway the number. So then they go ahead and create the national uh, popular vote interstate compact to try to put together an organization of states to try to uh, utilize all the electoral votes to only go towards the popular vote to disenfranchise the last 10 states don't even total 10 million. The last 10 states, 41 to 50 by population, only come out to 9.8 million. They don't even, the last 10 states don't even total the amount of people in Los Angeles County. So the globalists know what they're doing. And the states are turning blue. It's not a coincidence that from the west part of the country where I am, that California, Oregon, and, the, and, uh, and Washington are blue. And now Nevada is blue. Utah, in essence, is blue because Mitt Romney is, is, is blue. And then uh, Arizona is now blue. New Mexico is blue. Colorado is blue. So the states are falling like dominoes. And as they are, the uh, illegals are being moved into every one of those states. And so as the illegals are moved into those states and registered to vote, those states all fall blue. So they know what they're doing. And uh, November 3rd, 2020, I think, is going to be very interesting, not only for our president, but also for our House and our Senate, because we cannot, we cannot allow our House and our Senate and our, uh, and our presidency, we cannot allow the enemy to, in effect, take over our country. And that's exactly what it would be. If we allow that, then 
Uh, we're not honoring anybody who ever fought for this country, anybody who is patriotic, anybody who loves our flag, anybody who loves our American values. What we're doing is if we don't stand up for ourselves is we're surrendering. And there's no way that uh, I'm built to do that. <laughs> well, not only that, there, <laughs> well, you know, the, the, there are, they are well, feeding ahead, the South with people from up north that are encouraging Democrats to move south. And once they're there, they're, you know, they're bringing their liberal ways and they're bringing more family members down. So in a short while, I, I would say within 10 years, a lot of the um, Republican states, southern states, are going to turn blue if we don't, you know, find a way to um, counter that, that migration from the north. Yeah. Well, you, you notice how they're doing situation. the migration. Well, look how they're doing, Rob, how they're doing the migration from liberal states, northern states, as Curtis and I see them, because I'm from a liberal state and you are too, um, how they did it. They did it in, in such an insidious manner. They did it through increasing regulations. They did it through increasing taxes. They did it through social engineering, basically, and, and political engineering through legislation. So they ended up for people that are solid conservatives and Christian, and they said, well, you can't express your faith out in the public arena. So what we do logically is we vote with our feet. So we go to a state that we feel more comfortable in, like you did and like I have done, moving to a state where we feel uh, more sympathetical. I mean, these people think like me. They have no prejudice against anything I say or do. We have an open conversation, no fights. This is a great state to live in. You walk down the street, people say hi, shake your hand, hold the door for you. This is where the America I believe in. And we move from those liberal states where you don't have any of that, and then all of a sudden, everyone else looks around and says, well, listen, uh, our neighbor moved down, and they're paying, instead of $10,000 in property tax a year, they're only paying 800 And you're talking to them still on the phone. You're sending them emails. You're making phone calls. You're telling them how great it is. So we welcome them with <laughs> open arms down here. And, and when, when they move down here, it's like, oh, You've got plastic bags. Plastic bags and straws are bad for the environment. And you say, all right, whatever you say, you let it pass. And this is how they've become so insinuated in our red states. We welcome them with open arms because we're all American. We believe in God and country. And all of a sudden now it's like taxes go up. Mm. Uh, bags are banned. Uh, you have to wear a helmet if you ride a bicycle. I mean, all the liberties we thought we were coming back to are starting to be taken away because we're so busy leading our everyday lives, waiting to go into our swimming pool with the grandkids and not paying attention to what's going on locally. And, Rob, this is where I say all politics start at the local level. They get into our local neighborhoods. We allow them to make changes instead of fighting back. And holding our ground, and this is how they're able to turn red states blue. Yeah, you got Atlanta, you got you got Memphis, you got Birmingham, you got Raleigh. All of those are basically Democrats. And yeah, like it's said, turning. Yeah. And here it. we've got, and here we've got Nevada Charleston, to, and we've got Columbia, the two, Charleston, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the two largest urban areas. 
And it is yeah, spread out. Yeah, here Nevada's blue on both sides, House and Senate, and Governor, and uh, and Senator, uh, Senator, Governor, House, and Senate, all blue, all turn blue. And now they no sooner turn blue well, than they right. pass Bloomberg's red flag law of about the guns tightening up on gun control because that's their next thing. Oh yeah. Oh man, don't even get me started on that one. But that red flag <laughs> law is such a slippery slope, and you know, so what? You sneeze two houses over, and your neighbor gets pissed off at you. Next thing you know, you're hauled before a judge. Your guns are taken away, and you have no idea why. And then you're being submitted to a psych exam, and you have no idea why because your neighbor got pissed off at you. Red flag laws are the worst laws that have ever passed. But there is hope. There is hope out there, Rob, because you've got individuals such as Bob Johnson, who's the founder of BET. Remember back in the late 70s? Uh, BET came out with that black entertainment uh, network they came out with, where they came out with Ebony yes. Magazine and all the other things that fell in. He has yes. said publicly that the Dems have moved far, too far to the left. If you have an icon of the black community, such as Ben Johnson saying, you guys went a little too far, you're nuts. And you have them coming over saying, wait a minute, Trump may not be that bad. Let's take a look at this, folks. We may have a large segment of our society come 2020 shifting focus. And maybe we're not as bad off in 2020 as we think we are. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop fighting and using sites such as yours, ProAmericanOnly.org, to get the word out and keep the fight going. Absolutely. Well, you know – um, the backlash from the, the, the leaders in the black community uh, with the BET founder is that he doesn't represent the, the normal black, you know, uh, constituent. So that's how they're, they're fighting him back. You know, they pretty much just being dismissive of what he's saying. Well, and they do that. Uh, they're dismissive. Well, he doesn't represent the, well, the average black guy. Well, he's well, he controls an entertainment industry here, so he can get the message out in more subtle ways. That could change people's minds. I'm looking at the clock, Rob. We're so. down to our last 10 minutes. You're down to our last 10 minutes. We have had so much fun with you and our previous guest, uh, Peter DeBrasco, and his book, Enemies of the Press versus the American People. And we've had a lot of fun talking to you about these issues. And your website, ProAmericaOnly.org, it's a Christian conservative website that people have of like-minded people to get the message out. Find out what's going on in your local neighborhood because you have an event page as well as a page about news and other issues. And you can hook up with fellow like-minded people as well as celebrities such as Hannity and Judge Janine and learn more. Absolutely. I appreciate you having me on. And I want to close with one quick uh, statement. It's from Obama's handler. His name is Brzezinski. He's a big-time New World Order globalist inside. And he puts the matter rather bluntly, and I'm reading, by asserting that it was now harder to control but easier to kill a million people. Specifically, he said that new and old powers – face an unprecedented situation the lethality of their power is greater than ever but sadly for the new world order globalists their capacity to impose control over the politically awakened masses of the world is at a historical low so when we talk about google and we talk about facebook and we talk about instagram and the mass 
uh, mainstream media and we talk about a quote-unquote conspiracy, we're not wearing tinfoil hats. It's real. It's happening. And we need to make sure that we recognize it and we prepare so that in the event that a civilized solution does not come to be, we're prepared to fight and defend our family and our country and our freedoms. Rob, huge I got one that. question for you. Yes? One last question. How user-friendly is your um, website? How what? User-friendly. How user-friendly? Well, I think it's very user-friendly because uh, if anybody has a question of how to use it, they uh, mm-hmm. they can ask directly to our webmaster who's right there to explain how to use it. So if there's any – and there's FAQs that explain how to use it. So if somebody has a question, it's easy to ask, but we get very few questions. So I'm not aware that it's not user-friendly. Uh, we built it to be okay. user-friendly so that it's easy to use. That's if you can know. use Facebook, you can use – if you use Facebook, you can use proamericanonly.org. And as I said, it is absolutely free. They're not asking for donations. They're not looking for any handouts. You get on there, and you have a blast. And, uh, Rob, I want to thank you oh, for right. joining us, and God bless for the hard work you do. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure chatting with both of you, and keep up the good work on your end, and I'm going <laughs> to add you to my site so you're one of the celebrity links. And we'll get you in touch with Bobby Ooh, Lawrence. Bobby Lawrence. Absolutely. All righty. Thanks a million. All right. Uh, Rob Raskin of ProAmericanOnly.com, and also check out Peter Dabrowska, Dabrowska, his book Enemies, the Press versus the American People, as well as his other book about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And I want to add, uh, uh, Curtis, that I've got my Tea Party meeting on Monday, and what came in on my delivery, I'm wearing, going to have Gregory Wrightstone, as you know, Inconvenient Facts, wrote the book. And that's the uh, yeah. climate change hoax. He's going to be my guest speaker, speaker. and, and uh, book signer. Uh, but I got these in just the delivery just today. The boots I'm going to be wearing, my all-American uh, Laredo boots, uh, they just came in, and I will be happily displaying them at my Tea Party meeting on Monday so people looking in at the screen can see I got my, my little S-kickers, <laughs> my cockroach yeah, stompers I'm going to be wearing, my American boots. <laughs> I just showed it up on this. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, I'm going to Gregory is going to be doing a nice presentation with the book signing. So if you're here in the Buford area on in South Carolina, uh, check out our Buford Tea Party website. It's also up on Facebook under the Buford Tea Party, uh, and join us at 5:30 to 7:30 here uh, for Gregory Wrightstone to meet him. He's coming all the way down. He's right now vacationing here in South Carolina which makes it easier, just a couple hours' drive just south to come join us. Uh, We will be back here, Curtis. A a friend of mine, an old uh, guest, I shouldn't call him old, (laughs) he'll beat me up. Sam (laughs) Faddis is going to be joining us. We had him on recently. He came out with a new website called And, A-N-D, And Magazine, and it's really rocketing. It's it's really taking off. He's got great articles and things on there. Uh, He was former uh, intelligence uh, he's got a lot of the insight of what's going on internationally. I'm going to see who else I can get. Uh, I've been meeting to call Gordon Chang to get him back on, um, but I'll be working on it. I am feeling a lot better when I let people know, yes, I did end up back in the hospital just Wednesday afternoon. 
uh, ended up being rushed to the emergency once again. Got out yesterday afternoon. Uh, they're they're trying to figure out what's going on. My blood pressure's been doing like a little yo-yo, but we got it under control. So I'm back in the saddle. <laughs> so that's all I got, Curtis. Oh yes, Curtis, you've got something coming on. Also, you will be uh, a guest at one of your local tea parties, I believe, tomorrow. Um, Monday I'll be in Ormond Beach. Tuesday I'll be in St. Augustine at um, both tea parties, respectively. All right, great. So if people in Ormond Beach or uh, you said Boca Raton, the other one? St. Augustine. Oh, St. Augustine. St. Augustine. Which is just a couple of hours south yeah. of yeah, we're oh, yeah, a couple of hours south, just over the border there. Uh, so good luck on that, Curtis, and enjoy. So check out, Curtis, Appreciate I hope that. you put it up on your website, which is the original radicals dot, dot net. Dot net. Original dot, radicals yeah. dot net. One of these days, I'm going to put your website up on mine <laughs> so people can click on it and go straight to it. Remind me, send me an email. Just hit me over the head with a two-by-four, and we'll, we'll get it done. <laughs> okay. We'll get it done. Yep. Yes, we will. Right, so, yes, we so will. <laughs> we have, <laughs> I know there was yes, some technical can. difficulty over on Facebook. They had a problem hearing me. I don't know what's going on. I will check that out. Hopefully, we can get the video back up and loaded over there and then up on YouTube. I want to thank everyone that had the patience to hang out with me over at Facebook, everyone that participated here over in our chat room here in our uh, Blog Talk Radio, and those that tuned in on the uh, studio. And like I said, we will be back next Friday, same bad time, same bad station. So I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. Until then, I say good night and God bless.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.